Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 296, and I'm recording it today on March 17th, 2021, starting at exactly 9.47 a.m. in Denver, Colorado. Today, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Sue Ward about the considerations before judgment in horary astrology. Uh, so hey, Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. It's nice to be here, and it's nice yeah. to see you again. Yeah, it's been about 12 or 13 years. I met you, <laughs> last time I saw you in person was at a history conference that the Lodge was hosting, I think in, in October of 2008. A long time ago. Yeah, um, a lot has happened, but uh, we're going to be talking today about some of your, your work in the past over the course of the past few decades, especially in the early to mid-90s on the considerations before judgment, which you did a lot of work on, and I think it was much more controversial. I, I get the sense. I wasn't around during the mid-90s, so I've had to piece together some of this history myself, but some of your interpretations were more controversial uh, then. But I realized in recent years, a lot of people who didn't follow some of your interpretations, especially of the Void of Course Moon, have been won over and have in some instances sort of like reluctantly adopted that so that um, it's seen as a as a notable discovery at this point, rather than something that's more controversial. Um, so we'll, we'll get into the details about some of that. I wanted to start, first start just by introducing you and talking about your background in astrology a bit. Um, so how long have you been practicing astrology, or how did you get into it? Well, I've been studying astrology for probably about forty years, and I've been saying that for a little while now. So it might be longer still. Um, I began, I think, in the early 80s, going to um, a class of about eight um, women by a very nice woman called Kay Way. And um, I didn't think I was going to like it. I thought it was probably going to be rubbish. But I went anyway to um, stop my friend from nagging me. Um, but I, I was captured immediately. I mean, absolutely immediately. Um, became completely obsessed. I couldn't learn fast enough. This was the trouble. So I, I sort of ended up tripping over myself a bit. Um, but she had a great um, library and that she'd collected over the years. And um, one day we were sort of going through the books and she said, have a look at this one. And it was Zadkiel's bastardized version of Christian astrology. And we had a look, and I thought it was really quite quaint, um, very florid language, you know, the archaic English, and interesting, and horary, of course. I not really know what that was at all. I had no idea. Um, these questions were listed, you know, um, will I die, and um, what what's wrong with me, will I get that job, and so on and so forth. Um and I, I was fascinated by it. So she had um, a, a business card or, or an, an advert or something of Olivia Barclays, who recently, relatively recently, started her horary course. And um, I phoned Olivia, uh, which probably in some senses was a bit of a mistake. I should just have written <laughs> because I'd agreed to send her a check within about 15 minutes. Um, and so I started, but I had already begun with the Faculty of Astrological Studies, so I was already studying with them. Um, but I picked up on Olivia's course at the same time. 
Yeah. And the faculty at this time in the early 80s is teaching primarily just modern astrology of like maybe the Margaret Hone type school, right? Very, very Margaret Hone. And in fact, I think one or two of the textbooks were Hone's. Um, and she, as I recall, she was actually, although it's contemporary and everything, she was actually far more cautious about some of the changes that were being made than I think perhaps others were. Mm. Uh, but anyway, yes, it was very contemporary. So I, I completed that. I think it was then the intermediate course. I completed that. Um, and then, and, when, and that was coming off of um, like in the 1970s. There's more of a movement towards psychological astrology, or in some instances, like scientific astrology with statistical tests to attempt to validate astrology and things like that, right? Yes, I mean one of the uh, problems for in our discussion is the problem of William Lilly, and he had been picked up as a subject for uh, a book by Derek Parker. Um, forgotten what it's called now. Um, it's the only book that's been written with any kind of biographical pretensions at all of William Lilly. Uh, and people kind of thought that was William Lilly. Of course, you had the old Dictionary of National Biography, which had a kind of 19th century article on William Lilly, which completely slated him, plus Derek um, Parker's, Mr. Parker's book it didn't do you know it didn't do the tradition any favors because what they were trying to do in the 70s when Derek Parker's book was published um, was they were trying to kind of get rid of what they called superstition mm -hmm. from astrology I mean there was never properly defined but they knew they, they said they knew what they meant I mean I was in no position to judge I was so green um, and they uh, so that was the big thing and it was this push towards acceptance um, by the academy of some, whether it be scientific or, as you say, cultural. I mean, it was very difficult to tell, but um, yeah, there was a lot of that going on. It was a kind of um, extension of what the theosophical astrologers were doing in the earlier part of the 20th century. Okay. I mean, if I would think that it'll, that'll almost be like a rejection of the theosophical astrologers and their spiritualism, which um, in the 70s, it's like some of the popular things with like Michelle Gauguin and, and the Mars effect and like tests of astrology and, and maybe except astrologers that, to some extent. Yeah, well, there's, that's true. But it, it, except that, uh, as far as I'm aware, the, um, the interpretative nature of astrology remained theosophical. Right. Okay. So although you've got this idea of trying to separate it off, I mean, don't forget the theosophical astrologers were doing the same thing, you know, new scientific astrology, mm. changing the names as, and trying to get that word in as often as possible. Um, I don't know much changed, really. Yeah, you had the Gokulan uh, data, um, which people got very excited about. I don't quite know what happened to that. I mean, that, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, though, is, is most of that was focused on natal astrology and part of what you discovered with Lily and traditional astrology and, and starting to study with Olivia was horary astrology, which was seen at that time in the 1980s as a bit weird and sort of old-timey, right? Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I think it was Jeff Mayo in the back of one of his books mentions horary astrology, and he says something like, it's of the fairground. And this was quite a widespread, uh, that it was kind of fortune telling. Like the, the circus? 
Sorry? Like the circus. Yes. Uh, like a circus trick. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Fortune telling, uh, tea leaves and palm reading, things like that. And um, that was that was quite common. And so we felt, well, as we were studying, we felt, you know, almost like astrological pariahs. We were sort of on, on the periphery of everything. No, everyone thought we were a little bit odd. When I spoke to some of the more, one or two of the more experienced astrologers, they said that it was a mistake to study um, horary astrology so early in my studies that I needed really to be doing it because it was so complicated. That was the general rule. Um, but after a while, um, I was going to the, the Astrological Lodge um, in, in London quite a bit, where you were allowed to talk about the tradition and horary without being <laughs> laughed at. <laughs> um, and Mike Edwards was a, a long-standing member there, a great horary astrologer. Um, and he said to me, I begin all of my classes with horary. He said, because it's easier, because of its structure, it's easier. And I always remembered that. I kept that um, with me. And he's right. He was definitely right. Okay. So um, so part of it, I know you told me at one point that you liked the fact that not only were you studying a very unusual subject with astrology in general, but you were also considered a bit weird even within that community by others who were studying it as a result of focusing on horror. Yes. Yes. Um, there, there weren't that many of us. I remember who uh, somebody was giving a, a talk and I, I'll tell you where it was. It was at one of the Astrological Association open days. They had a horary day, right? This was a big deal, all right? And I went, Olivia went, and so I wish I could remember who it was, was talking. And he said he felt a bit like, um, you know, the joke. I don't know if you know the joke about the dirty postcard salesman who's always got a these dirty postcards here, right? So you couldn't say, okay. do you want to buy a dirty car? So he said, do you want to see a horary? <laughs> you know, you got to keep it under your jacket. Don't tell right. too many people. Yeah. It was that kind of thing. Yeah. It was that kind of thing. That makes sense. That's really funny um, compared to now. So, so part of this has to do with um, the early revival of traditional horary in the 1980s and early 1990s that was especially centered around the re revival of William Lilly's book, Christian Astrology, which was published in 1647. And this especially came about um, partially due to Olivia Barclay and some of her students. So you you found Olivia at some point in the in the early to mid-1980s, and she was already practicing or moving towards a more traditional style of horary based on she had a copy of William Lilly's text and she was photocopying some portions of it right and making that available to students the horary section which is book 2 uh, she'd photocopied that um her just as an aside in case people don't know this because it's fascinating her original copy she picked up for 10 pounds that's about Thirteen or fourteen dollars. Wow, and it was an original copy from sixteen forty-seven. Yes, yes. How did she find it? Just in like a used bookstore or something? Uh, yeah, she just tripped over it. Yeah. Uh, oh, and it was an accident. In a second-hand so bookshop. 
Okay, so she's just like looking for astrology books, and she finds a three hundred year old astrology text that happens to be the first English textbook on astrology. Yes, exactly. And she said, and afterwards, when I realised what I'd got, she said I did feel quite guilty for a while. So I said, well, go back and give him some more money. So she said, no, I'm not doing that. So yeah, but she ten pounds or thirteen or fourteen dollars now. I mean, ten pounds is worth a bit more so then, but um, yeah. Sure. Um, do you know? Happen to know roughly what year that was when she found it? I don't. Um, I'm I'm sort of guessing it was the end of the seventies because she must have started her course. See, I can't remember when I joined up with her. She'd been running for one or maybe two years by the time I joined. Um, so I'm guessing probably the late seventies. She okay. found that book. Yeah. So she'd been working with Lily's methods then for for a number of years up to that point, and she started the qualifying Hori practitioners course, uh, which became a kind of a famous course for Hori because a number of students of that course, such as yourself or or other notable astrologers, ended up taking it and getting certified, and then going on to be notable practitioners of Hori in their own right, like like you, uh, John Frawley, Lee Lehman. Barbara Dunn and I think Deborah Holding or Deborah Holding studied through you. So you studied with Olivia and then you ended up teaching and becoming a tutor for the qualifying Hori practitioner course, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. I did that for, I don't know, I don't know how long, a year or two, something like that. Yeah. Okay. And then eventually you went off on your own and, and started teaching Hori on your own? Yes. Well, the tradition is the tradition. I think I, I'm, I want to, although, yes, I, it is. Horary that I focus on, what we have to keep in mind always with this is that there is only one traditional astrology, right? And we apply it differently, mm. whether that be horary events, elections, or nativities, um, you know, mundane, it's the same astrology. So that, you know, I like to say that because it's actually something that is a bit of a hangover from those early days where people thought, it was something all on its own. Horary astrology sort of existed in a vacuum. It that is all, but it's not. It's just an applica one application. Right. In reality, once you learn the principles of traditional astrology, you realize that a lot of them are interchangeable, no matter what branch you're applying them to. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, let's see. So. Are there any other notable students of Olivia? I'm just trying to give context since you were there at the beginning um, that became there were, notable. There, there were lots that started and didn't finish. Um, okay. I'm trying to think. Um, Jackie Slevin, mm -hmm. she was a student. Okay. I worked with her for a time. Um, Who was it that had the um, Ivy Goldstein Jacobson course? Gilbert was it Gilbert Navarro? Yeah, I think I've heard. I think Anthony Lewis told me that he studied with Gilbert Navarro or had had some interaction with him. Yeah, um, I think he he taught um, IGJ's uh, methods, um, and I think he may have come on to Olivia's course at least for a time. There was some connection there, but I actually can't remember um, because she did turn over quite a number of students, uh, actually, but an awful lot didn't stay the course. Sure. 
Um, so, and then many of them, some of her more notable students, ended up having students of their own who have since become notable. Like, for example, uh, Lee Lehman. For example, uh, one of her students was Christopher Warnock, and then Christopher Warnock has gone on to teach other students since then. And there's a lot of other instances like that um, where you know, since it's been a while now, it's created these whole lineages of astrologers that that sort I think of probably I was the. I think, if I remember correctly, I think I was the first one to set up a course after Olivia's course. Okay. Um, and it went on. Yes. So that would have been. That would have been in the late eighties, early nineties. So that would have been the first one, and then they kind of followed uh, in fairly rapid succession after that. Um, I think, and, and you've got oh, numberless courses now. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like there was an explosion of the practice of of traditional horary astrology and different publications set up for either traditional or for horary in particular. Um and this was complemented by um in a previous episode, episode 212 of the Astrology Podcast, I did an episode on the reprinting of the Regulus edition of William Lilly's Christian Astrology in 1985, which was like this huge turning point it seemed like in the community uh where Clive Cavan and I, I interviewed him when I visited London a couple of years ago in 2019 about this project to reprint the original version of Lily's Christian astrology and make it available to astrologers. And that was a big sort of turning point, it seemed it like. It was. It absolutely was. I mean, a beautiful, beautiful edition. And if anyone has the leather bound edition, hang on to that because there weren't very many of those printed. I think it was something like 70 were printed. I mean, it wasn't very many. Um, but it's, it is a beautiful edition, and mine is now broken to bits over the years. But it's still holding together after all that time. Because you've but used it, it so much. Sorry. Because you've used it so much. Because I've in... used it so much. Yes, exactly. And it's um, what it meant, and what it meant to me particularly was that I now it's a bit like, yeah. You know, it's a bit like getting rid of the priests, um, because I could now access William Lilly directly. Mm-hmm. I also had that first book, which gave you the foundation, which was essential. None of us had had that. No one had been taught those fundamentals. Oh, so okay. trying because to the, deal- the photocopies that Olivia was circulating up to that point was just book two, the hoary part, but it it wasn't the first. So book. yeah, so trying to come to get to grips with the astrology in that book too. Um, was almost impossible. It was so difficult. That's aside from the archaic language. Mm-hmm. Um, so having that first book just changed my life completely. Um, the book on nativities later that that was um, my obsession. I have these obsessions, and book one was an obsession for quite some time, and I turned that inside out a number of times. Um, and then moved on to book three, uh, because book three, that's the nativities section and the uh, prediction, natal prediction section. Uh, some of that I'd never heard of. Perfections, never heard of perfections before. Um, for example, primary directions I'd never heard of before. Um, so yeah, and also the vocabulary is so rich. So yeah, I mean, having that book did literally change my life because I, I, I mean, I'm 
you cut me in half, it says astrology right the way through the middle. I'm absolutely soaked in it. So getting that book was marvelous, marvelous. Yeah, wonderful. Okay. And part of the context is that there was, so there's the Hori chapters floating around in photocopies, and then there was an updated version of Lily that was published in 1835 by Zadkiel, but it's kind of like a abridged version where he oh it's up, it's bad he updated bad. he included new things like uranus and newly discovered planets and other things like that right i don't know i never ever read it i only saw it that f- once when my teacher showed it to me um okay but i i mean i it, it's it's generally accepted as being a bastardized version and there's no way i would touch it with a disinfected barge pole so um because because you can't trust what it's got and why, yeah, why should I'll show, you? Why would you? You've got the the real thing now. So. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree with that. It's just interesting that for many generations up to that point, there's little tiny bits of the practice of Hori that survived in 20th century astrology and astrologers like Ivy Goldstein Jacobson or um, Barbara Waters, but they Barbara were- Barbara Waters used it. They tend to yes, be drawing on the Zadkiel edition of Lily, which is more I don't like know a- which one, but she also Waters was because we had to also study Waters and Jacobson for Olivia's course, and Waters also um, was something of a, a Ptolemy scholar. She knew Ptolemy too, so yeah. But nevertheless, it was very it was very modern. Um, no, I think. Yeah, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Carry on. Uh- I'm not sure what I was basically just saying that up until it's like there was um because there's a little bit of practice of Hori in like let's say mid-20th century astrology, but it tends to come from like these re- these later versions of Lily from Zadkiel that are um in a, at, le- at the very best like an abridgment of Lily, but at the worst, I think you used more strong language than that. Uh, no, for- no, it's, that's not rude. That's a proper word. It's in the dictionary. <laughs> okay. Well, there's <laughs> lots of words word. in the dictionary that I, I'm not allowed to use in polite company. <laughs> <Okay>. But <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, no, that's fine. Uh, so it's not a swear word. It is proper. <laughs> right. Um, so there's Ivy Goldstein Jacobson. There's Barbara Waters, and then. That's like a version of Hori that's floating around, which is like a, a more modern version that contains some traditional elements, but also has many modern elements and some things that have changed. And, and the considerations are one that we'll get to. I know around 1985, one of the things I noticed that was interesting in the timeline and trying to piece this together is uh, Derek Appleby's book on Hori astrology, titled Hori Astrology: An Introduction to the Astrology of Time, came out. And that was something that seemed like it was somewhat in line with some of the modern tradition in being somewhat influenced by Lily, but also taking into account other things from like Ivy Goldstein Jacobson or other Hori astrologers. I think he was an IGJ student okay. originally. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah. Got it. So part of the appeal then after the Regulus edition of Lily came out is that people were reading Lily directly on their own again. Um, Olivia's approach was still very much influenced by modern views of horary by people like Ivy or Barbara Waters. But then all of a sudden, there's this new generation of astrologers like yourself who are getting into Lily much earlier, and they're getting into Lily directly through the source with no intermediaries, and then starting to struggle with that text and read it and do textual analysis of Lily. so sometimes this textual analysis would inform or modify the techniques employed, 
and sometimes reading the text raised questions or discrepancies. Yes. Um, and the considerations before judgment is one of those areas where where some of these discrepancies came up. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, we had noticed um, because of as you as you know, um, they were regarded as strictures earlier. Um, in that you couldn't judge a chart if one of them arose. And that's pretty much how people practiced. And it was one of the complaints from people outside of horary astrology. There are so many charts that you just can't judge because one of these things, these strictures comes up and you're stuffed. So I sit. Were there other areas? Were there other areas where textual analysis, before we get to the considerations, where Reading the text directly, the original text of Lily brought up issues or debates, or or what sort of debates were had aside from the considerations amongst like early people who were reading Lily. Well, yes, but this is what I'm saying because because it was drilled into us that they were strictures. You were more likely to notice them when they came up in a published chart. Mm. So you were already tuned in conditioned to spot these things. Um, and it w- might be at a conference or, or a, a, an evening, you know, at the lodge or something. Somebody had put a chart up and one of these strictures was in place and everyone would jump on it. So we we thought we knew what they were. So when we were reading, now being able to read Christian astrology with um, this background of book one, now you can start to see, you look at his chart examples and you say, well, hang on a minute, the moon's void, of course, here, or or that's a late ascendant, or Saturn's in the first. Um, what's he doing? You know, these, these are strictures, they should not be there. Well, of course, the... Um, the suspicion was that Lily was a charlatan, yeah, and that he actually was cheating, or or he was wrong, or, or something, because there were many detractors. Morris wasn't the only one, um, and of course Olivia took this very personally. And um, the one thing you can say about Olivia, she was like an encyclopedia. She could quote page numbers after one, after the other, after the other from Christian astrology. She knew exactly where these arguments were. Um, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I mean, I can't do it. Um, she, so yeah, so these things were constant battles so one amongst of the, things the community. That people like yourself were doing where they were reading Lily and basically committing it to memory so that you kind of knew every, people like you or Olivia knew every square inch of that text eventually. Yeah, no, I wouldn't memorize. Um, it's just for for Olivia. Yes, she was looking for oh, ammunition, really, you know, to defend what she was doing and to defend William Lilly. So that was what she was doing. So you know, she can do the chapter and verse thing. For me, it's been three three separate restarts. I've rebooted my astrology three separate times, and not including the first time, um, through Christian astrology. So I know the book pretty well because I've been through it from cover to cover at various times. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's not memorizing. My memory is awful, um, so <laughs> there's no way I can remember all of that. And that's the other thing about it: you don't have to. The book's there. Right, sure. Okay, so let's 
I guess let's jump into our main topic fully then, since you started to go there. So um, Lily has a section on the considerations before judgment in Christian astrology, and he seems to have standardized a bunch of rules, like miscellaneous rules that he picked up in earlier authors. Um, for example, Guido Bonatti, who lived in the 12th or 13th century, was one of the people that he took some of these rules from. And they sort of were like, generally speaking, things that you're supposed to take into account before judging a horary question. Um, and in some instances, it might tell you something to be careful about in the chart. And in other instances, it might be um, something to tell you to avoid reading the chart altogether is one of the ways that they were interpreted, I think, um, by different astrologers. So um, by the time, let me actually show an image of this because I took a, a picture of just where it starts on page 121 of Christian Astrology yesterday. Um, and it's just this section, it's towards the end of book one. So the entirety of book one is basic concepts and definitions, and it goes through the signs and the planets and the houses. And then at, at the very end of book one, he just has this section titled Considerations Before Judgment, where he introduces this topic right before transitioning into book two, where he introduces horary astrology proper, I think, essentially, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, if I could just say first, before sure. we get into the detail of this, mm -hmm. um, that Christian astrology is a massive compilation right. of um, the, his tradition the authors, the authorities of his tradition. So it's a huge compilation. You've seen his bibliography, it's massive, right? So um, he's read these. It's not just Bernati, um, which, by the way, Clive Cavan also published Anima Astrologiae, which was some of Bernati's considerations and Cardan's, which was translated by Lily and Coley. So he produced a very nice copy of that too. Um, so it's not just Bonatti, although Lily did favour him. Um, he mentions in those considerations our kindy, but there are other, many other authors. So what he's doing is he's pulling it all together. And what he says in his introduction is that he is trying to systematise the material, which has never been done before. He's not talking about revising. When he says, this is my method, I've methodized this. He's talking about the systematized, the structure of the book. Mm -hmm. Okay. This has not been done before, he says. And he's pulled together all those authors. So you're going to find throughout that book evidence of his sources. Right. But the beauty of it is that he also applies it with his own experience. So you're going to find this from, you know, his sources popping up all through the book. You know, very little of the theory, unless he says it, very little of that theory is his. It's not coming out of his head. He has translated it and put it into English and organized it. Um, but he will say when it's his experience or his method. Yeah, that seems to be one of the marks of all of the great traditional astrologers is that there's this um, blend or this synthesis between, on the one hand, them reading and synthesizing whatever authors they had available to them, and sometimes prioritizing certain authors that they think are, are more important authorities or who have the best um, rules and interpretations. And then on the other hand, 
astrologers like Lily actually putting those rules into practice and seeing what works for them by seeing lots of clients and applying the principles on a day-to-day basis until they eventually form a system of their own uh, that's a blend between what they've inherited versus what they think works in practice. And that's kind of what Christian astrology is. Yeah, quite. I mean, what they had was respect for their forebears. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it wasn't just respect. It was um, that's how you you that that was the convention of the time. If you didn't show um, that you knew who your preceding authorities were, then you were counted to be uneducated and ignorant. So it was very much a part of their tradition, as far as I know, um, that you did always refer back. And actually, in Christian astrology, he parts company, I can't remember why now, he parts company with Ptolemy. And he says, you know, to the reader, you know, I'm sorry that I've done this. Um, He said, but I am differing with him, but know that everything I do now has been informed by everything I've read up to date. So though he says he's kind of breaking slightly with tradition here, he has been informed by that very tradition. So he's not doing anything outrageous. So yeah. Yeah, so it's always a tension between those two because he does occasionally he'll like cite what the authorities say, but then he'll say, "But this doesn't quite work for me." Or sometimes he uh, does have not disagreements, but maybe certain authors he he's not in full agreement with, right? Well, that's right. I mean, he'll say, uh, "I th- I think you find a lot of that actually in um, the seventh house where he's doing lost and mislaid and stolen articles." Um, there are so many conflicting um, theories throughout that section. It's a big section, big chapter. Um, there are lots of conflict because he's pulling them in from all over the place. And then you find Lily's best experience rules. This mm. section he's put together, where he's actually worked with this um, because he's pulling from the Arabs. The Arabs in quotes. Um, he's pulling from the Arabs, and they were busying themselves with trying to get this all organized and pushing the boundaries of astrology and finding out um they they were great explorers of of science um and he's trying to make sense of what he's reading when you've got conflicting arguments coming from different authors um so he's trying to make sense of that and he does help but really his experience what I think it's been worked out. He was doing something like eight client charts a day, every day. I don't know anyone now who does anything like that. And this was a these are people that were coming to see him, or sometimes writing letters. And he, I think you said that you had access to his um, some of his private working files, and that he sometimes would start at seven a.m. and then he would just work and see clients the rest of the day. Yes, um, he'd keep going. I mean, they would use daylight, of course, as much as possible. Um, walking the streets of London in the dark wasn't something to be recommended, particularly since the streets were quite often filthy. Um, you couldn't see what you were treading in, for example. Um, but yes, he did, and by letter, sometimes nativities um, and other work. But that was interesting because the only real... Um, obstacle I could see to his reading, to his working, was when he kind of stopped in the middle of the day 
and it appeared anyway that he didn't pick up again until the, well, I think it was the following day. I'm testing my memory here, but there was a big gap. And what had happened, what was happening astrologically, was that the moon had moved into the later degrees of the sign. Mm. And it had done that in Gemini. So um, you can speculate that he'd stopped because of that. Um, he stopped working because of that. You could also speculate that he was hungry or needed to go to the toilet or something, you know, or had to go to the shops for something as well. But um, yeah, it, that was the only time I could find. Um, and I haven't looked at all of his workbooks, you know, only two or three. Um, so yeah, there are others. But that, that was the okay. one that stood out. Got it. Um, so let's see. So going back to the considerations, um, let me just read, or do you want to read this first paragraph from Christian Astrology, just where he introduces? What, the considerate? Yes. Um, all the ancients that have wrote of questions do give warning to the astrologer that before he deliver judgment, he will consider whether the figure is radical and capable of judgment. The question then shall be taken for radical or fit to be judged when as the lord of the hour at the time of proposing the question and erecting the figure and the lord of the ascendant or first house are of one triplicity or be one or of the same nature. Is that enough? Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, so that's how he introduces the considerations and you know, this is in 1647 when he originally writes this. And by the time of the 1970s, some of these considerations, they'd been around for centuries and passed on in what little works of or little practice of horary survived into the 20th century. They eventually morphed into strictures in horary practice or what became known as strictures and started being interpreted as rules, meaning that the chart can't or shouldn't be judged or interpreted. Um, so ultimately this this was partially derived from Lily, but long removed from his direct sort of source text. So Ivy Goldstein Jacobson called them cautions. And then eventually in, in her 1973 book, Horary Astrology and the Judgment of Events, Barbara Waters referred to them as quote unquote strictures. And then it seems like this term strictures started becoming popular and started being common. By the time of that that first generation of like traditional horary astrologers in the 1980s, I noticed Carol Wiggers using the term strictures in the first issue of the Horary Practitioner in 1989. So this is like a common idea that if one of these considerations came up, that you weren't supposed to interpret the horary chart at all. That's right. Um, yes, that's right. Um, absolutely right. And of course, I forgot about Carol Wiggers. She was a student too. Um, yes, that's absolutely correct. Uh, you just were not. I kind of suspect that it was um, a hangover, of a kind of new agey superstition um, that you were being told something. You know, you're being best to step away. Uh, like, you know, Mission Impossible, this chart was going to explode in front of you if you didn't, if you didn't accept the mission. So, Sorry. Right, right, because the considerations were passed on, sort of roughly speaking, from Lily, and so they were viewed as something that was like centuries old and probably venerable. But there was this air, this air of like um, danger if if these showed up, and and some astrologers took that so seriously that they 
advised you just to not even touch the Hori chart if they appear? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that was the feeling you got. And, and I suppose if you want to move forward to Morris's, Morris McCann's um, critique, uh, it, he kind of called everybody out on that, really. Right. So this is where so we get to your where you come in and, and your story, which is that um, astrologers in the late 80s and early 90s noticed that Lily actually still read some Hori charts where the considerations were present, where there, there were chart examples in Christian astrology where the, the considerations are there. So there's suddenly a disconnect between um, this modern notion that you should never read a Hori chart where the considerations are present versus this realization once the original text of Lily was available again that he actually did read some charts where the considerations were there. And um, Maurice McCann was one of the first that really jumped on and focused on this a lot. But you also noted that Olivia noticed this but didn't broadcast it because she didn't want to undermine Lily. Yeah, I had the conversation with her. I remember having the conversation. And because um, I think uh, Morris had maybe written his article or, or maybe had told her he was going to write this article, I can't remember now where we were at. Um, no, 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 it was before the article. Um, and he said, he had said that he'd picked this up. And, and I said, but it is whatever it was, void, of course. That In that chart, that moon is void, of course. And she said, yes, I know. But, you know, kind of, shh, <laughs> don't tell anybody. Um, yes, but it's, it's void, of course, he is judging it. Um, but I still was thinking in terms of strictures at that time. So it, it seemed odd. It was questionable to say the least. Okay. So it's like originally I thought that this was because coming into astrology and especially traditional astrology in the mid 2000s, I think I read my first Hori book in, in 2004 or something like that. Yeah, 2004. And I noticed that it seemed like there had been a bunch of discussion amongst um, Olivia's students about this discrepancy. But recently I'm realizing this was primarily something that came up or was discovered primarily by Maurice who started talking about it. So this is um, uh, Maurice McCann who was an Irish astrologer that was active especially in the 1980s and 1990s and he passed away in, in 2001, I believe. Um, so he, he published an article titled um, in 1992 titled, Lily Says, A Reference to the Considerations Before Judgment in the Astrology Quarterly, uh, Volume 63, Number 1, Winter of 1992. And what he did is he went through and he tabulated um, the number of charts where Lily had considerations before judgment present, but still interpreted the chart. And he um, pointed out the number of times that these were present, uh, indicated that it was something it was like a rule that Lily wasn't actually following in some way. And he made a very strong argument then saying the considerations for judgment, I think he tried to argue were, were worthless and should be rejected at the most extreme, or at the very least, he said early on maybe something softer that they should be contemplated or reflected on, but not something that should tell you whether the chart should be judged or not. Um, and it seemed like this was a really pivotal article that a number of people took note on, but you especially uh, were were affected by and reacted to very strongly. Mm. Um, 
I think what it demonstrates is how useful the new Regulus edition was, because as you said, people were now beginning to read it properly right. instead of accepting things, making assumptions. But um, Morris was as conditioned as the rest of us, um, and we were all making assumptions and speculating. And also, and um, the thing that always, always aggravates me is when people assume that because they don't understand something, there's something wrong with the text, with the source, when it could just be their level of understanding, they need to stop and think a bit harder. And this was going on. I mean, Morris had found something, and, and he used to do this quite a lot. He would find something that was really quite spot on, but he'd run off at a tangent. He'd kind of get all excited and then run off at a tangent and lose it. And this was really what he did here because he made a number of mistakes um, in that article, which I think had he slowed down a little bit, he wouldn't have made. Um, but kind of it was an open goal for me. Um but what he did do was he made me read through every chart and check every chart and then keep going back to that section that I've just read, read out, you know, the considerations before judgment. Check them, check them, go back, go back, go back. And this took a long time to write, a long time. Um, so he did us all a favour, actually. So it was a surprise. Because he called us all out on this. So it was a surprise because up until that point, the, the quote unquote, what had become the strictures were taken so seriously by some in the in the Hori tradition. And this raised the question then of what was the purpose of the considerations then if yeah. they were not supposed to be used to reject Hori charts entirely? Because well, everybody slipped over onto the IGJ caution thing, um, started talking about them being cautions. Um, which you, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but the detail was important. And Morris had kind of suspected that in his work. But as I say, he kind of slipped off the side. Um, because, you know, he was more interested in, um, or he was interested in, um, demolishing Lily's, Lily and Lily's arguments. Um, right. It seems like he sometimes had a tendency to do that when, with analyzing sources. When I, I met him the first and only time when I met you at that Lodge History Conference, and I remember he gave a talk that was on um, Bonatti and how Bonatti used some hypothetical chart examples that were astronomically impossible. And then he, his conclusion from that that he made was that Bonatti didn't know what he was talking about or something like that. Like he took it to a somewhat extreme conclusion that I, I was a bit surprised by, and I know my friend Ben Dykes was there and who translated Bonatti and was also a bit surprised by. So this was also sort of something he did with Lily similarly, where he noticed this discrepancy where Lily used the considerations even though, or, or interpreted charts, even though the considerations were present, and he drew somewhat extreme conclusions about Lily and Lily's practice as a result of that? Yes, it really was. And and well you can see once you once you've read mine and how I've answered, how I've replied um to his criticisms, you can see where he's gone wrong. Um and I think he did later too. And then after the lodge one night, and this was a, a little while after all of this, <laughs> he was in the pub and he saw me and he said Ha, 
I've got him this time. I said, pardon? You've got who? Lily, I've got him. I've got him. I said, oh, really? What have you got him on this time? He said, the receptions. I've got him on the receptions. I said, oh, well, well done, Morris. And he wrote an article and I had to reply on that one as well. Yeah. So he kind of had a bee in his bonnet okay. about Lily. Sure. So um, so I wanted to mention really quickly some of my reconstruction of the history of some of this in the 20th century horary. I wanted to acknowledge Lee Lehman and her art entry for horary astrology in the second edition of the astrology book by James R. Lewis that was published in 2003 because it's actually kind of useful in piecing some of this together. Um, so some astrologers, though, came to different conclusions about what Maurice's discovery meant for the considerations before judgment. So some astrologers like John Frawley claimed that they the considerations were just used then, that they they were meaningless and they were just used by some astrologers or concocted by some astrologers to get out of asking hoary questions when they didn't want to answer them. And I remember hearing this a lot. This became a very popular statement to repeat that many of Frawley's students repeated in the 2000s that always really annoyed and, and drove me crazy for a period. And you don't hear it as much anymore, but I know there was a period in the 2000s where it was just like lots of people were repeating that statement. Um, so that was one you know, instance yeah, of one of- they're repeating that statement like they repeated the statement about the strictures. Right. It's the same kind of conditioning, yeah. Yeah, so it, that always bothered me because there was no historical like evidence for that. Like he didn't find a manuscript where Bonatti or somebody says that they just made them up to get out of answering questions. It was just an attempt to explain the disconnect between the idea of the strictures versus Maurice's discovery that Lily still used charts even when the considerations were present. So that was one conclusion um for Maurice uh, one of your the things you've said is that it was kind of an indication, or his conclusion was that Lily didn't know what he was doing. Um, for others, though, like you, you made the conclusion that they were the considerations were just useful pieces of information to take into account. And Maurice's critique prompted you to do a careful analysis of the considerations and to go back over Lily's chart examples to see how he actually interpreted those charts. Because one of the things that Maurice did, so you ended up writing an article as a direct response to Maurice um, in the Astrology Quarterly. So it was titled, uh, Lily's Method, A Response to Maurice McCann <clears throat> in Volume 63, Number 2, Spring 1993 of the Astrology Quarterly Journal. And you went through and did this careful analysis partially because one of the things that Maurice did that I noticed in his article is that he he just tabulated everything and added up the numbers so that it was just a sort of numerical tabulation of which which considerations were present in which um, chart examples. And he went through and counted each of the considerations and how many times one of those showed up according to his tabulation in in different ones and and. He said, for example, that um, yeah, some of the numbers were like uh, whether the Lord of the Hour consideration was present or whether it was not present, and the, the numbers were kind of even on that, 
or whether there were charts with an early degree rising or a late degree rising or the moon void of course or what have you. So he did this kind of numerical tabulation, but one of the things I noticed you did in your response article is that you kind of rejected that approach because you argued that it was important to go through each example and take them each on their own terms. And when you did that, it turned out that many of the considerations were sometimes incorporated into Lily's delineation in some notable way. Yeah. I think, uh, and this is this is a topic that needs to be, this is a subject that needs to be um, grasped. Context is everything in horrory. Mm. Right. Right. Every chart. This is why it's so difficult. It, that tabulation is okay, but it's very, very difficult to do that with um, for very long. And it's one of the reasons why you can't really prove it according to um, modern scientific standards, because you need the context, which potentially makes every single horary chart different from every other single horary chart. So. Morris had completely forgotten about context when he did that, and by doing what he did, you know, in that tabula doing that tabulation, is quite clearly is not reading the judgment. He's just looking at the chart, the chart square itself. So that's very limiting, you know, particularly for an astrologer. It's very limiting. You have to look at what the context was, what the background was. I mean, you know, you just have to look at the judgment, which is what, of course, Lily was doing. Right. So, and you took into account Lily's workbooks and you argued for retaining the considerations against Maurice's apparent attempt to just reject them entirely. Mm. And part of what you showed in the statistical approach being misplaced was that in many instances where the considerations were present, there were mitigating conditions in the chart examples that, that sort of explained why the chart was still relevant or why that consideration was not a major deal breaker. Or in some instances, you pointed out um, areas where he incorrectly included event charts instead of Hori charts so that it wouldn't, the consideration wasn't relevant because it was an electional chart or an inception chart. Um, or in many other instances, you pointed out instances where the consideration actually gave relevant information that was incorporated into Lily's interpretation or that described the situation in some way. Yes. I mean, this This was, um, and, and of course, this was all new to me. I, I maybe would um, change some of my views of his judgments now, um, but certainly that was all new to me then. And uh, so it was absolutely fascinating to work on this, truly fascinating. And you get the gist that um, he's a working astrologer. That horror that Christian astrology is a primer. It was the first of its type in this country. He is not going to be publishing anything that is going to be contentious. He's not going to lay himself open to more criticism than he already had. So, uh, you know, by publishing in the first place. So you have to start from that premise rather than, and I saw in that, um, slide you showed of Morris's article that he said, by today's standards. 
Mm. These charts by today's standards, you can't do that. You cannot judge, you know, 350-year-old chart by today's standards. You have to judge them by their standards. Otherwise, it's just not fair, is it? So there it is right at the bottom. Strictly speaking, by today's standards, these are the only horoscopes that are fit to be judged. This is a big mistake. Right, because he says at the end, after after tabulating and coming up with uh, yeah, a lot of instances where the considerations are present, he says, the only truly radical charts according to the modern interpretation of Lily's considerations are uh, the examples that appear on pages 389, 436, 439, and 452. So basically four charts. So his point was that if you take these considerations and you reject any Hori charts um, that where they're present, uh, according to the modern interpretation of the considerations before judgment, then there's only four examples in Lily that would survive that should have been included in Christian astrology. Mm. You see, and, and this is this is a fatal mistake when you're looking at historical texts. You can't judge by today's standards. You have to. I mean, any historian worth their salt. Um, attempts, at least, to sympathise with the period that they're dealing with. They show some sensitivity, and that was completely lacking there. And I think that's why it went wrong, um, part of the reason it went wrong. If you start from the position that somebody is, is a crook, then everything you turn up is going to support your premise. <laughs> um, right. That's something... I mean that's a, it's an interesting issue that uh, traditional astro the astrologers run into sometimes when they try to do historical studies of ancient texts or older texts from especially er different languages or earlier centuries and cultures is sometimes an astrologer even despite their best efforts can have preconceptions going into it about what they expect to find or what certain definitions are and sometimes that will color their interpretation when they're reading the text. Well, objectivity is impossible, of course, complete objectivity, um, right. even for the most experienced and knowledgeable historians. Um, but you have to attempt it. Um, if you're looking, and this I'm talking about in historical sense, in an interpretative sense, no, um, then you, you're wholly subjective. Um, but yeah, from but you know, in terms of interpretation, the objectivity should already be deeply ingrained in your training. Sure, but it, but that's I guess that's the issue is that many astrologers, like in this first generation of astrologers who are struggling with Lily, for example, and reading this 17th century text that had suddenly be become available again. All of you, you astrologers at that time, were having to learn um, critical analysis or textual analysis, and were kind of doing it on the fly or teaching yourselves how to study a historical text in this way. Certainly, it's true for me. Yes. Yeah, but for you, it wasn't just a historical text; it was also a, a living document with, you know, doctrines that you hope to incorporate into your practice. Yes, that's true. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually do think about astrology almost as an entity. Hmm. So having a book of it like that, particularly that kind of book, that particular book um, is, is, is a very special exposition of that. It's an expression, if you like, of that entity. So it's that entity is speaking because he had respect. 
had the respect for his uh, for his art, and he had um, respect. Well, he was a devout Christian for a start, as most of them were. Well, perhaps Ashmore wasn't, but he was. <laughs> but um, yeah, so they, there was a kind of respect. Whilst all the world was changing around him at that time, with plague and civil wars and the restoration and so on and so forth, uh, everything was changing. He maintained a line throughout his published career, and it was the same line for 40 years thereabouts. Okay. And it seems like part of your, when I was re when I was reading your articles, both your Maurice's article and then your response to it, it seemed like one of the things that you were slightly annoyed about is that he had a, you have a stronger reverence for that text, for Lily in particular, uh, and that you, your reverence, um, made you not defer to it, but um, gave you a deeper appreciation for it and a desire to understand it on its own terms better and sort of an annoyance with anybody who might reject it um, out of well, hand or reject it, it for yeah rejecting it on the on an educated ground on educated grounds is one thing. Hmm. Rejecting it from ignorance is another. And and this, as I said to you earlier, the thing that really does get to me is when people don't test their own understanding first before criticising something or someone um, for not teaching them properly or not explaining properly. And um, when that happens, you have to stop and think, is it my understanding? You can't ask him to explain again that you can go back to the text and reread. And too often people go in with expectations or assumptions um, based on a superficial understanding of the tradition, not just of Christian astrology. So if you're going to, it's like the historian has to have a kind of sensitivity to the period he or she is dealing with. You have to, otherwise you're never going to crack the nut, never. And this is the same with astrology. Open your mind up, show a little bit of humility and ask the questions of the text and keep asking the questions. Don't tell it what you think it should be. Ask. And um, there do you get your answers. It all becomes clear. That makes sense. Um, all right. So here is the article uh, from the Astro Astrological Astrology Quarterly, Maurice's original article in 1992, and then your response to him, which came out in 1993. So um, the gist of it is that you argued and were able to point out that Lily did actually seem to pay attention to the considerations to some extent. He just didn't completely reject charts in all instances based on them. Um, so this article came out in 1993. It was reprinted a few times in different journals. Um, I'll put a, a link to it where people can can read it in the on the Astrology Podcast website um, in the show notes for this episode, so people can check it out because it was a really great article and discussion about the considerations. Um, so let's actually talk about them at this point and get into the individual considerations and what they are about. So the considerations are on pages 121 through 123 of Christian Astrology, um, and you read the, the first one earlier. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the the points that's actually important is that he repeats many of the same, even though people focus on that that two or three pages where they first appear at the very end of book one, he actually repeats many of the considerations later on in a section titled Aphorisms and Considerations for Better Judging Any Horary Question on pages 298 through 302, which is, I think, towards the beginning of his mm. interpretations for seventh house horary questions, right? Mm-hmm. Believe okay. so, yes. Yes. Okay. So in the original treatment, though, in book at the end of book one, it seems like there are 12 discrete consider- considerations before judgment in the initial section. Um, if, you inc- if you incorporate the later ones that appear in book two, it might raise it to 13 or more. But for the sake of just focusing on the initial ones, which then got passed down as part of the tradition, it seems like it's broken out into 12. And Lily uses he uses specific language that I tried to write down when describing them. One of the words that he uses is calling them warnings. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has this discussion and he starts using this terminology of whether the chart is radical or rooted or has a strong foundation at this point, saying, quote unquote, whether the figure is radical and capable of judgment, uh, quote unquote, the question shall be taken for radical or fit to be judged when, and so on and so forth. So um, maybe this would be a good point to discuss that, um, what that means for a question to be radical or not radical. Yeah, good idea. Because um, you have to question the question before you can get into the considerations before judgment. And of course, he does talk about that as do other authors, um, early authors. They talk about the horary question. The first and foremost, all questions are not horary questions. A horary question is the question put to the astrologer, mm. and only then. That's, that's Now, that sounds obvious, but actually in the early days, people weren't doing that. People were kind of listening to a conversation, and somebody would say, oh, it would be good if I could find out if I was going to buy that house. And the undercover horary astrologer would then look at their watch, take the time, and then do a, a surreptitious chart. Well, you can't do that. That was not a horary question. That was just a question in general conversation. The idea is that by approaching the astrologer with your horary question, you are now part of a magical process. This is a process whereby the astrologer is taking over for you and is putting your question to the heavens. The moon is your transmitter, is your modem. So they've prayed, they've done their bit, as certain authors recommend, that they pray for a day and a night, not if it's urgent, of course, to pray for a day and a night to get the question right. They've got the problem, now they've got to have a question, now they approach the astrologer, and that now becomes a horary question. Right, that emphasis on it was especially emphasized in the early horror tradition where the question had to be important. It had to be an important, not, you know, pointless or not um, you know, light question, not frivolous question. Yeah, good, good word. That's the word I was looking for. And also in in some authors, the person had to have it had to have been important and the person needs to have thought about it for I think Banati says like a 24 hour period it's or something like something that was really a day and a night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think Lily says something similar. He says, unless it's some really pressing, important matter or something like that. 
So well, I, that's it. Yeah, they want people to pray. I mean, this was their way of doing things. And this was pre-Christian, they would be doing this. Um, the same principles would apply, is that you are properly directed to make a clear question. Now, once it's gone to the astrologer, it's now the astrologer's responsibility to make sure they understand that question. That too sounds very simple. But I know from my early days, used to get myself in a right twist over this. And of course, that affected the timing of the question. And this is the essence. This is a word I use a lot in astrology, is finding that essence. It's that really deep down kernel of truth. And this is what it is about the question. The essence of the question is finding out what the querent wants in an ideal world. So if money is no object, you could move the earth three feet to the left. If everything was ideal, what would be the outcome you would want? Once you have that, now you understand the question. Once the querent has been honest with you, because they aren't always, they don't mean to lie, it's just they might be a bit embarrassed or may not be that clear about their own question anyway. So what you ask is, what is their ideal result? Once you have that, now you understand. Now you set your time. And now you ask the heavens right, for your answer. Um, so that's the essence of the question. And that's why it's, it's actually, I mean, even I'm making it sound really simple and it is fairly straightforward, but that's why you've got these considerations because you can't always trust the question because the question can be wobbly or not quite real. I mean, I've had questions, for example, in the early days where somebody would say, um, oh, I don't know, a question, a really sort of woolly question like, uh, will this relationship go somewhere? Right. We all know what they mean, a kind of, it's a sort of everyday um, way of putting things. But what you really have to find out is what is the ideal? And nine times out of 10, it's that they want to be married to that person, but won't say it. They just won't come out and say that the, the marriage word. <laughs> so you have to kind of say, what is your ideal? You know, in no, no holds barred, you know, nothing's going to stand in the way. What is your ideal? And if you keep pushing and pushing and pushing. So that's the kind of thing. Now, if you went in and said, will we stay together? You know, is this a worthwhile relationship? You're going to get into a terrible tangle with something like that. I mean, what is worthwhile? What do we mean by that? You know, so um, no, I think that, I think the question and the importance of the horary question is the reason for these considerations and so many of them and why the Arabs, again, sorry, Arabs in quotes, why, why they were, um, they were pushing boundaries, as I said earlier, and really exploring outwards into the finer, finer detail and actually creating this fine detail. They had to be careful. And I mean, Olivia would say, well, if you're going to get your head chopped off, you're going to be quite careful, aren't you, about giving your question, giving your answer. Um, well, I'm not sure. But that's that's why the question is very, very important. And if it's not properly constructed and not properly understood, then you're going to get these kinds of problems. Right. I was talking to an astrologer from Australia, Rob Bailey, who does traditional horary about this and about 
he had written a, a paper uh, that he hasn't published yet, but it was trying to trace the origin of some of the considerations back to earlier authors in the earlier medieval tradition. And one of the things that we talked about is how it seems like some of the considerations just go back to this real emphasis uh, that some of the early astrologers had on the question being important and the emphasis on it being an important question that was also like a valid horary question. And this is one of the distinctions I sometimes see between like ancient horary in the medieval and even Renaissance period versus modern horary is um, I feel like there's more of a tendency sometimes in modern times to accept sort of frivolous questions or, or for horary to be applicable to any sort of question versus- And I'll tell you why, because you can whack it out on the computer in no time or oh, on okay. an iPad or something like that. There's no is work it, involved. It's easier to calculate charts now, so so people will just cast charts for anything. You think that's part of it? Yes, I do. Oh, very much so. Um, and I'm speaking as a, I mean, obviously, when I was calculating charts, we didn't have the computerized programs um, and applications. I mean, I, I, you know, some people had got scientific calculators that had been programmed or something or other, but I didn't have one of those. And I managed to calculate and draw up a chart. I could do this in 20 minutes, hand calculate, hand draw, get a chart up in 20 minutes. That was fast, right? But nevertheless, it's a bit different to like what, a couple of nanoseconds on the computer. Right. Um, those people are called figure flingers. Um, they're just going to throw up questions. And it's one thing I always tell my students to print the chart. Don't try and read it off the screen. Print it. Because it's still virtual up on the screen. Ground it. Bring it down to earth and put it on paper. Because that's how it always was looked at. Um, so, And then it becomes real. It's no good looking at it. I mean, I've tried, and, and it's never that successful. Okay. Um, yeah, so it seems like that's really important, and this gets back to the idea of radicality. Um, and this term radical, it's from the Latin term radix, which means root or foundation. Um, and the considerations have to do with the description of the chart and what and that being the ultimate test of radicality, which is does the chart match the question? Mm. And the rules, one of the points that you make in your article is that the rules were meant to protect the astrologer and to give them useful information. Um, the other thing is that it seems to help to confirm the serious intent on the part of the querent um, and also to establish the seriousness versus the frivolity of the querent. And this seems to be part of where some of the considerations, the very first consideration that Lily gives comes from Bonatti. And Bonatti spends a, a decent bit of time talking about how part of his issue is that sometimes people would come to him to either test him or to try to trick him in some way. And he kept noticing certain things coming up when that would happen. And that seems to be the origin, at least, of one of the considerations is just a desire to weed out serious questions versus or real questions versus not real ones. Um, by saying that certain things would come up in those instances where these things were present? Mm. Yeah, you see, the thing we've lost with computers, and I, I love computers. I absolutely adore gadgets. I love it. I love computerized anything. But the thing we've lost as astrologers is we don't know what's happening. If you are drawing up 
even three or four charts in a day, um, and I mean for that day, you know, we're talking maybe horary questions, you know exactly where everything is. You know what's moving, what's fast, what's slow, what's retrograde, what's direct, what's stationing. You know what the planetary hour is. You know roughly where the planets are. You can gauge it in the sky. You can even roughly work out where the ascendant is. Mm-hmm. Right. All of those things you get from manually calculating and drawing a chart, um, which is what they had. So when you're saying that Bernati would notice this, that, or the other thing, when so he knew he he knew in his head because he's dealing with it all the time, all day long. When somebody comes in and it's a Mars hour, he's going to think, oh, hold on a minute, what's going on? Um, if he knows that maybe Scorpio's rising, he's, gonna, he's going to be more cautious. So you listen to those people because they were doing, they were working at the coalface. That's, that's a really good point. And maybe, so this is part of where the considerations come from is the more divinatory origins of horary and that you pay attention to everything that's happening in the moment of the horary question as being relevant and giving you relevant information about what is happening in that moment and how it relates to not just the outcome of the person's question, but also what led them to ask the question and what is in the mind of or what is in the inner thoughts of that person who's come to you at that moment as a client. Yes. You see, if you are, as, as I said, I mentioned it once, it's a magical process. Mm. And if you're involved in a magical process, you want to make sure that it's clean, as clean as possible, that you stay on the right side of things. You don't want to get into trouble. You don't want yourself to be um, contaminated or corrupted by something that the querent is doing. So that's another reason for these considerations. It isn't just that you're going to get into trouble if you get it wrong or somebody's going to take the mickey out of you. You do it because it's part of divination. It's part of your soul. It's keeping your soul clean. So that is also, I mean, these things I didn't know when I wrote first wrote those articles. I, I was not aware of that. Um, these, these are things that I've come to understand in later years. Um, but that, I suspect, is at the bottom of these considerations. It's not as mechanical as we tend to look at it. It's much more to do with yeah, protecting themselves, but also making sure that they're not getting dragged into something they shouldn't be dragged into. That makes because sense. Because it is a magical process. You are speaking to the gods. Because part of the um, what happens with a horary question is that there is a an exchange where a question is posed by the querent or by a client to an astrologer. And then one of the things that is kind of magical and interesting and weird about that is that the astrologer themselves gets implicated in the question and the Hori chart, which is cast for the moment when the question is posed to the astrologer, doesn't just reflect the the querent and the nature of their question and its outcome. But also sometimes you can see the astrologer's role in the chart itself as well. And that's part partially where the considerations come mm, from. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, what you're talking about is you're you're kind of the middle person. You're you're the querence agent, in a sense. But you're also the heavens agent to the querent, if you see what I mean. So you're you're working two ways, much like the moon does. The moon is the modem, so it goes both ways. And you and you're in the way. So if 
as my friend would say, that that mystic anvil in the sky is going to drop on anybody because something's gone wrong. It's going to be you because you're in the way as the astrologer. You're the one that's stuck the head above the parapet and is speaking to the gods. So that's another reason for showing some respect and a little humility, you see. So all these things come together and you see them in these considerations. You see those those cautions, those trying to be prepared for the worst, trying to clear. You know, the old uh, in in the old days when they were doing their their magic, they would do they would call it suffumigation to clear the room. They would suffumigate the room to make sure that it was clear of all evil um, influences. In a sense, the considerations before judgment are a bit like that. They're suffumigating the chart. So it's a, a bit safer for you to proceed and safer for the client, of course, too. Yes. Right. Okay. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think some of the c- considerations maybe can be understood better in the context of um, almost like a consultation chart or what I call the consultation chart framework, which is oh, that okay, yeah. I know when somebody poses you a question and you're receiving it as an astrologer, it's also sort of setting up something similar to what modern astrologers call a consultation chart, yes, which is when you you cast a chart for the moment the consultation begins and it's supposed to tell you something about how that consultation will go. And some of these rules focus on not what the querent is doing or thinking, but sometimes how it will relate to you, the astrologer, and the astrologer gets assigned to the seventh house in that context. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I think that I mean, there's this. This is such a huge subject, Chris. Um, when you're looking at astrology um, as divination, you kind of have to look at the tradition. There is nowhere else to look for it. Um, you have to look at the tradition. You have to look at how they approached um, their lives, their worldviews, their their cultures. They, all of these things are important, and which is why it's important to read around to get your historical context. Um, and I think that with William Lilly, I mean, he's written these down. He may well have written more down had he had more time or if that particular book had turned up while he was writing this, remembering that this is quill pen and parchment and ink, right? No word processors. So if you make a mistake, you've got to do it all again. How long did he work on it? For it was like ten years or something like that, wasn't it? No, 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 no. He did this quite quite amazing, actually. He did this quite quickly. Um, he started publishing in sixteen forty four. Okay. Um, he published, I think, three or four uh, booklets, uh, treatises in sixteen forty four. One including was one included was the almanac for that year. Um, so no, this would have been put together in three years. I would have thought. Well, maybe I. How long had he been studying astrology before he published Christian Astrology? Uh sixteen thirty-five. I think that was he started. Okay, yeah. So about twelve years earlier. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, fair enough. So he okay. he started studying astrology in sixteen thirty-five, and then he published Christian Astrology in uh, sixteen forty-seven. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I take your point. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know that he ever intended. At that early stage, to be publishing, right? No, I was just thinking. I was just thinking in terms of you know how long had Lily been reading through different source texts and synthesizing different 
sources as well as um, putting the the principles into practice. How much you know? How long had it been practicing horror? Yeah. Well, then that would be yeah, ten to twelve years, something like that. Yeah. By the time it was published, yeah. Okay. I can't remember it. the exact date when he first went to. Um, oh, what was that man's Evans? John Evans. When he first went to him, um, I don't remember. But after that, he talked himself. Then he left London. Um, and then came back and started practicing in earnest, uh, practicing astrology in earnest. Because you remember, oh, perhaps you don't, um, he was meeting John Booker for the first time and he felt he really needed to kind of revise his astrology. So he got into his books really quickly so that he wouldn't look silly when he met John Booker. So he was still quite new, yeah, at that time. Okay. Um, and you actually published a really great book um, with Peter Stockinger on William Lilly, titled William Lilly, The Last Magician, Adept, and Astrologer, uh, back when was this in 2014? Yes. Okay. And yes. that covers, it includes his autobiography, but also you, you did a study of different parts of his life and some of his yes, relationships yes, with different astrologers. Yes. Yeah, the Gadbury thing. Um, that was, again, an irritation. Um, where people assumed they were rivals and they weren't. Um, there was no way John Gabbery could ever come close to William Lilly, socially or intellectually. And that's not just me saying it because I'm a fan, it's how it was. So, um, you know, we embarked on this because I was getting fed up with reading about it. Um, and so we embarked on this research project um, to find out just exactly what the truth was. And the truth was far different. I mean, you've only got to look at the chronology to see that it's Gadbury that's getting himself into a state for whatever reason. Um, and then there's like 10 years goes by where there's nothing. Um, and then suddenly Gadbury, I don't know, gets a bee in his bonnet and starts again. But it, it, it just was nothing. It was because Gadbury betrayed him betrayed Lily. And that's where it all started. After all the kindnesses that Lily had done for him, um, employing him, helping him with his library and so on and so forth, introducing him to people, um, which is so important then, so important to have a network of, of um, supporters and hopefully patrons. Um, and then he, he stabbed him in the back. So that's why it's called Monastery of Ingratitude, because it was worse than murder in those days. Why or, why or how did Gadbury betray Lily? Um, he wrote against him. Okay, it was the attack. He started attacking him in He print. started attacking him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that it was a demonstration. It wasn't so much of what he said or anything, because that early attack wasn't that bad, but it was the ingratitude that was a very, very serious um, crime to commit. Very serious. Okay. Um, and he died with that label round his neck, Gadbury. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Nobody ever forgot. I mean, John Partridge made sure he didn't forget. He kept reminding him. <laughs> um, but yes, he was. He was a monster of ingratitude. He absolutely was. Yeah. And not a very good astrologer either. Okay. Well, I don't. Uh, that might be a whole show in and of itself. At some point, I'm very interested by some of these interrelationships between different astrologers and who knew who and who was connected with who or who was enemies with who. This is one of the first periods. While you get 
little bits and pieces of that in the Arabic tradition in like the eighth and ninth centuries. And I just did an episode on Baran of Baghdad where we talked about what astrologers she knew or was connected to. It's really not until you get to this period in the 17th century that all of a sudden you can really document much better some of the connections and the social connections between different astrologers and how that played a role in shaping the history of astrology, essentially. Absolutely. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And actually, um, Professor Yostin, who edited Ashmole's autobiographical notes, massive <laughs> task, um, he suspects or suspected that there was some kind of secret society that Lily was involved with because he knew just about everybody. Um, and if you read some of the letters that still uh, survive, Letters to Lily, um, they're very deferential. Mm. Very. I mean, yeah, they're usually asking for something, so they would be showing some kind of respect, but they are deferential. And even though um, Elias Ashmore could have been said to be his social superior, that wasn't the level of their friendship. Um, their friendship was very much, in fact, uh, Lily was, yeah, because Ashmore was still consulting with Lily for ast astrological reasons right to the end. Okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, the, these social connections are Im important, actually, in understanding. You're quite right. And it is fascinating. Yeah. And then he also had students and, and some students who'd later go on to be notable astrologers like Henry Coley and, and others like that. Yeah, Henry Coley was one. Richard Sanders was another. Richard Edlin was another, I believe. But um, and I believe it was Edlin who was due to inherit Lily's almanac and his astrological practice, but he died um, before uh, Lily, so he died quite young. So that's why Coley ended up as his amanuensis and um, taking over. But it didn't. I don't think it went on for that long. It was a few years, and then you find that, believe it was Partridge, was criticising Coley for selling talismans, mm. something he'd learnt from Lily. Um, so selling these talismans because some a woman client apparently had gone back to Charter, to Partridge and says, "Look, he's given me this. He sold me this." Mm -hmm. Partridge has leapt on it, absolutely jumped all over it. And what was the relation uh, in terms of translating Bonatti's considerations later? Who did translate those? Because it seemed like I'm a little unclear about whether it was translated by Lily or translated by Coley. Um, I think it was probably both, um, but certainly Coley would have been um, instrumental in that because of Lily's eyesight, apart from anything else. So His yeah. eyes started going bad later in life? Yes. He was almost completely blind at the end, which is why he needed an amanuensis. Okay, got it. Um, all right. Well, let's. I wanted to um, break down the individual considerations. So why don't we jump into that if you're Just if sure. you're ready? Carry on. Yes, I'm okay. sorry. We kind of got sidetracked. Didn't no, we? it's fine. There was a lot of things, and I I set a very, um, you know, some people would probably be a little annoyed that we didn't jump into the considerations initially at first, but part of what I wanted to do with this episode was talk about, interview you about your background in history because you've made notable contributions to the history of astrology at this point and, and at this point actually influenced the astrological tradition with some of your analysis of Lily. And I wanted to document that. And then I wanted to document the modern 
take on the considerations before judgment and what they had become in, in turning into strictures, and then some of the debate that you had with Maurice and everything else. And then in this final third part here, I want us to go through the actual considerations and talk about what they mean and what um, like what the actual definition is, and then what that might actually mean or how it might be relevant in a horary chart. Okay, fair, fine. All right, so um, back to sharing the just the first page of the considerations before judgment from Lily. Um, the very first one that he gives is talking about the um, uh, having some sort of connection with the Lord of the Hour and the Ascendant or the ruler of the Ascendant, essentially, right? So that the Lord of the Hour and the Lord of the Ascendant are supposed to be of the same triplicity or the same nature. And if they are, then the chart is is radical. And if they are not, then it's some, supposed to be some sort of indication that there might be something wrong. Uh, the planetary hour is important. Um, he doesn't always note it in Christian astrology, but in his workbooks, it's there all the time. Um, you know, it, he'll put the planetary day at the top of the page when he starts work, and so, so on. Like, so like he is moon, fully aware, like, like Monday, Moon Day, or. Mars Day, Mercury Day, so on and so forth. Yes, exactly. Um, so this is this is important, and I write about it in that article. It's kind of, um, it, in my view, it relates to the journey of the sun god through the heavens. It's twenty four hour journey, and each hour, this is these are astrological hours. Um, it reaches. It has to pass through a gate, and it has to give the right password to that gate. Now to the gatekeeper, I beg your pardon, before it can pass in through that hour and down to the next one. I've interpreted that to mean being with the flow of events. So this is where you find that sympathy of the heavens with the question. So that, um, for example, you want to start a new business and we're in a recession. Not a good time to start a business. I think anybody would, would say that. But you're, you're likely to find that any query, any question about that is going to have a planetary hour that does not accord with the ascendant because the times, the ebb and flow are not going with you. They're going against you. Now, that doesn't mean you can't start your new business. It just means it's going to be more difficult because things aren't flowing with you. They're not going to help you. So the atmosphere of the time, the, the, the way things are, the political situation at the time or the economic situation at the time is working against you. Right? The atmosphere is wrong. So that doesn't preclude you're getting a successful answer. But it does mean... And this is another point that we have to bear in mind with all of these things and with any horary chart, actually. The horary chart, the best is, it assumes the best is possible. And the best that is possible, particularly in the past, was that it kind of fell through the ceiling into your lap. It just happened. You didn't even have to go out of the door, right? It just happened. That is the best possible result. But as we know, most often it requires effort. 
So that's when you start to see the square aspects and you start to see planetary hours not working very well. Um, you start to see difficult significators because it isn't going to just drop out of the sky into your lap. So we have to keep that in mind as well when we're talking about the considerations. They are talking about the best possible outcome. And the best possible outcome is that you don't have to lift a finger to get whatever it is you're asking about. Okay. Right. And the, otherwise, and there being a spectrum from like best case scenario versus worst case scenario versus whatever's in between where there might be some obstacles or some bumps in the road along the way. Yes, exactly. Um, the, they don't preclude your getting what you're after. But um, it just makes it more difficult. In that, you're going to have to expend some energy, put yourself out. Um, you know, so for example, going back to my "you want to start a new business" um, analogy, you you might find that the bank manager isn't quite as keen on giving you money, for example. So that's going to be a problem if you can't get the the extra finance that you require. So, but it doesn't stop you starting your business. Hmm. Okay, so that's the planetary hour. Um, there are mitigations, and as I say, it doesn't necessarily preclude your moving forward to the judgment. Um, as with anything in any horary chart, the descriptions of you, you've already said this, the descriptions are essential. They should describe the people involved and the situation, the current situation as it stands. If it doesn't, and you're also getting one of these considerations coming up, you need to think very hard about proceeding. Right. So it seems like so. So, so one. Why don't we define really quickly the three criteria that Lily gives for how this can be a match? And it seems like one of them. It, the first one is the ruler of the hour and the ruler of the ascendant are the same planet. Correct. So, for example, if it was the hour of Venus and Taurus was rising so that Venus is the ruler of the ascendant, that would be an instance where there would be a connection. Yes. So that would be a good thing. It's the uh, same the thing. So the planet that represents the Quirin, Venus in this case, um, is also is tying in, is sympathizing, or the heavens are sympathizing with that planet. So you have an identification between the two. All right. So you can see that this suits, because it's a Venus hour, it suits Venus very well. So it's in the right place. It's in the right atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the second one is when the ruler of the ascendant's triplicity and the ruler of the hour are the same planet. Yes. So what would be an example of that? Mars. Uh, so Scorpio rises. Oh, any watery Mars is the ruler of the hour. So any watery sign rising. Mars, Cancer. Um, sorry, Scorpio, Cancer, or Pisces. Um, that is going to be in accord because Mars rules that triplicity, rules the water triplicity. And he gives that example, actually. So it's that's a simple one. Um, so if, for example, Scorpio rises, Mars rules Scorpio. The planetary hour is also ruled by Mars. So that is in accord, that is in agreement. And this using the triplicity is interesting, actually, because it gives you another idea about atmosphere. You know when people talk about being in their element, mm -hmm. that expression? Well, that's what we're talking about here. It's the same thing. 
Okay. Interesting. That makes sense. It suits. It suits. And then the final, the third consideration or the third one as part of this criteria is when the ruler of the hour and the ascendant have the same temperamental nature or underlying temperament quality. Yes. So that's the ruler of the hour um, is, say, Mars again. Leo is rising, which makes the ruler of the ascendant the sun. Sun and Mars are now in agreement because they have the same nature. They are both hot and dry. That's what they mean by nature. Got it. So there's just these three conditions that show a link between the ruler of the hour and the um, planets connected to the ascendant. So this is the consideration why I was trying to trace where this comes from, um, where Bonatti mentions this in his aphorisms or considerations in aphorism 7 and 143. Um, and he says that if this happens, the question will not be rooted or radical. It will be lacking in a firm foundation or intention um, if this condition is not met. And um, so this is listed under a section on ways in which an astrologer can err. Um, so if there was not one of these connections, then for Bonatti and then evidently for Lily, there was something off or there was some sort of disconnect between not just the hour and the ascendant, but something about the question not lining up with the heavens in a sense at the time. Yeah, it's, not, it's not sympathizing. The heavens aren't sympathizing with the question. And this idea of rooting radicality and so on and radix, this is substance. This is bringing it down to earth. That's what this is talking about. It's not up in the air still. You know, we were talking about the chart on a piece of paper and the chart on the screen. You know, the chart on the piece of paper is real, that on the screen is virtual. So, what we're talking about is something that can actually be achieved in an earthly context, in a material context. So, that's the idea of rooting. Rooting goes into the ground. All right grounding. So is it feasible? Is it substantial? Is it plausible? Will it work? You know, um, will I meet my soulmate? What does that mean? The chances are you're not going to get a radical chart because that really isn't grounded, is it? That's up here somewhere um, in, in fantasy. I mean, we need to get it grounded before it can become a horary question. Right. Bring it or down to earth. Or in the case of like Bonatti and his preoccupation with somebody testing him or playing a trick on him, if he doesn't see the Lord of the Hour matching up with the ruler of the Ascendant, then he's seeing a disconnect between what the person is asking versus what the chart's saying, and therefore starts questioning whether the intentions of the person are genuine or whether that's an indication that they're somehow there's something else going on, and they might have ulterior motives. Sure. Well, okay. I, I don't know. You know, I'm not as familiar with Bernati's work, obviously, as I am with Lily's. But it's this idea of rooting is this idea of also of plausibility. So, if you're talking about a disconnect, um, what you're getting is yes, it is a disconnect. It is something that is completely out of um, out of kilter with with what's going on in the world now. Right. So this isn't plausible. This isn't feasible. This doesn't have grounding. It's not real. It's a fantasy. So you can see um, from that point of view why he might suspect somebody coming in in that condition. I 
I speculate. <laughs> okay. Um, but I, I can I can kind of understand that. Now, whether that was Lily's problem or not, that I can't tell you. Um, because sometimes he judges charts when the planetary hour isn't in accord. Right. Um, yeah, but the, it seems like the underlying thing here is just that the chart is supposed to reflect the question. And if the chart's not reflecting the question in some way, then then there might be a problem for some reason, for some unknown reason. Yes. Yes. Okay. Or no, you might know the reason. Like I told you about the business and the economic situation. Yeah. I mean, you might well know what the reason is. Um, sometimes, no. I mean, if if the you have to know that the querence the question is possible. Um have you ever had somebody test you or, or do a trick or a question that you know of? Not that I know of. Okay. Um, I mean, no, I, I tend to be- Or somebody that was skeptical of horary that was just asking a not important question or something well, like I that. I wouldn't do it. I, w I wouldn't. No. Um, yeah, I've got better things to do with my time than play games. Um, I, I mean- you know, I noticed that in that Lily talks in in Fourth House Matters, he talks about um, a game he plays about mislaid items, hmm. um, where he's he he actually recites this that he uh, would go to a friend's house and they would hide something from him, and he would have to find it by the horary chart. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure that was a horary, actually. But he says he used the hurry to find these items, and and why would I? I don't disbelieve him. So he obviously was one for using it in that way. Um, but then on the other hand, when it was about theft, he would say quite outright he hated them. He hated questions about theft because it was too easy to get the wrong person to blame the wrong person. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, all right, so let's see. So that's the, that's basically like the first consideration, and it's inspired by Bonatti. The second consideration is the ascendant being in the first few degrees of a sign, hmm. um, and Lily says especially the signs of short ascension, which rise very quickly. Hmm. And he says, "quote unquote," you may not adventure judgment. Um, he says, unless, and then he gives an exception for this one, unless the querent be very young and his corporature complexion and moles or scars on his body agree with the quality of the sign ascending. Mm. So with this one, the second consideration is if the ascendant is basically in the first, what, two to three degrees of the sign? Zero, one, two, and up to three. Zero degrees, one degree, and two degrees, yeah. Got it. Um, so, if the ascendant is very early in the, and let me see if I can share a picture of this one, very early in the sign, then again, there's some sort of um, issue going on here with the chart, or there's just some sort of consideration that you need to take into account in terms of the question. But that exception is very important and very interesting because he says, um, unless the querent is very young, because um, the current being very young would mean that they're very early in their life or they're not very old, and therefore an early ascendant would symbolically be reflecting or echoing um, that the person is young, so that there would actually be, it would be radical in the sense that there would be a clear connection between 
why the ascendant is so early mm. uh, because it's actually describing the querent it's being very early in their life. Exactly, it's descriptive, um, and I think, and that's you might want to extend that slightly to a situation. The situation is new, not just the querent. A brand new situation will often show up in early degrees, of course, not necessarily on the ascendant. But you, I think, when they're saying about the short, I wonder, you know, particularly when they're included, emphasizing signs of short ascension, if there is a calculation problem here, if it's, you know, you know, that the tables were less than reliable. Um, so if that's what the, this also is reflecting. So this is going to be more to do with the um, older, the medieval situation where the tables were awful. Um, Lily would have considered his tables to have been much more accurate. So, um, no, would have, he did. Um, so that's possibly one that he's not, he's just recounting. I mean, most of these he is reporting yeah, so I mean that's a valid issue that if the ascendant is at like zero degrees and one minute of the sign, um, unless you have very very exact precision, you it could actually be at the end of the previous sign. And for a hoary question, that's going to be crucial because it will change the ruler of the ascendant, and you could get the judgment wrong, the interpretation wrong, if you're looking at the wrong chart. Exactly, but then that's the next consideration: is late degrees. Rising, so it's it's the kind of the other end of the argument, isn't it? So if you if your early degree early degree chart is out, and it can still happen, it still varies with computerized calculations um, algorithms. So if your chart is out and it goes into late degrees, it's still not radical either right. way. Um, and so that's definitely a potential issue that it could be a calculation issue. But then also, um, I noted on page 298 that Lily said, says, if few degrees ascend, the matter is not yet ripe for judgment. Yes, that's right. And um, Culpepper makes a similar statement in Aphorism 22 saying the question is not yet ready for judgment. So there might have been a symbolic meaning for some of those questions when this appears as a consideration that you need to take into account that there's something premature or early about the question, like perhaps the situation hasn't fully developed yet. Yes, that's right. And you see exactly it's it's opposite with the late degrees, exactly the opposite to that. Um, and I think, yes, yeah, that's that's true. And and Culpepper is after Lily. So he will have been um following that tradition too. So yes, anything in early degrees is an early situation. You can use that word. Same with late degrees. It's a late situation. So whether it's on the ascendant or anywhere else or a planet in a sign, early or late, you have the same situation, an early situation or a late situation. Now, that can be good or bad depending on what the question is. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example for the late because that's more frequent in my experience anyway, the late degrees, somebody asked me, somebody who already had, I think, four or five children, a man, asked me, he said, we think my wife's pregnant again. <laughs> that would have been, I don't know, five or six or seven or something. 
And he kind of sighed and said, is my wife pregnant again? So up went the chart and it came up with late degrees. But it wasn't the only thing, but it was a late degrees on the ascendant. And and I said, this is, the question is past maturity. Um, and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't think that's one argument that she's not pregnant because it's gone beyond that point. But the other thing was that the moon was void, of course. So I had two in the same chart, but I still judged it. And I said, no, she's not. You're worrying about nothing. And she wasn't. He did have the decency to let me know. Not everybody does, but yeah, he did. Yeah. Sure. So that was- those those things, you know, can be, and there's another one that, that was late ascendant. Uh, I can't go into details of that because it's in the course, but it was another situation um, where the situation that was being asked about had already been completed. Yeah. Um, whereas for the early ascendant, I've seen that in situations where the person's asking too early and the situation just hasn't developed yet. Yeah. And- these these are where, yeah, the, Talking too far into the future, or uh, you know, there is a, a an event that needs to take place first. Right. Right. You know, I want to go into business. Okay, you want to go into business. Will my business be successful? Well, hang on a minute. <laughs> have you got the funds? Have you worked out your business plan? Have you done this? Have you done that? That will be early early degrees. And then you ask them that after you've cast the chart, and they say, "Well, well, no, I've I haven't even started the business yet." That's right. Or- Something like that. So there's like a prematureness, or if they were saying, you know, will I get married to this person? And then later it comes out that they haven't even started a relationship yet, or something like that. That is that is very common. Yes, yeah, I've had a so number I've, of those. Yes, right. So I think that's a really common one, and I think that tends to be where other later horror astrologers over the past decade or two go with that. I know that's. How Lee Lehman interprets it, and that's one of the ways I learned from her. Is one of my first horary teachers about how the considerations tell you something that's relevant about the situation that are just like helpful tips. Um, that some, not always, sometimes, but they can be. Yeah, yeah, not always, but just uh, sometimes that's how they are useful pieces of information rather than things that completely invalidate the chart. Even though in some instances it, it might, it might mean. Um, that it's too too premature, or that there's some things that need to happen first before this question can really um, be brought to fulfillment in some way. Yeah, but you see, what you're what you're doing is you're answering that question about what is radicality, mm-hmm. and radicality is, as I said to you, is that grounding. Is it is the seed in the ground so that it can grow? Well, the questions you're talking about, no, they haven't even got the seed yet, much less planted it. So there's no root. Do you see? Right. It's lacking. There you're in a, lacking in a foundation. radicality. You're lacking a root. And yeah, and so that seems more relevant for um I did look back back at Benati because he mentions this in consideration seven as like a personal observation, saying that he he noticed it happening frequently when people either came to test him or who asked a question without having a true intention behind it. And he says that what he would do then is is call them out on it, and either they would be impressed and start believing in astrology if they were skeptical about it, or they were, if they were trying to deceive him, he would call them out and they would kind of freak out and leave. 
So it's interesting seeing that being sort of Bonatti's stated um, part of the reason why he introduced this consideration versus how Lily and Culpepper are using it as more like something that's coming up that gives you relevant information about the question being premature in some way. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, things will develop. And you going through these people in the mid to late 17th century were inundated with clients. They were doing charts left and right in very difficult circumstances. So you get lots of war charts of various sorts, questions relating to war. So you have, um, it, it was a breeding ground for astrologers. There was no restrictions on publishing. Um, at that time, which is where it all started, of course, 1642-ish. Um, so you have, yeah, I mean, they were doing a lot of work, a lot of work. So why wouldn't they develop what they, the theory that they'd inherited? Why wouldn't they develop it? Of course they would. But they'd still have to be as cautious as everybody else. And um, William Lilly particularly, um, as I say, was a devout man. Uh, but he was also an occultist, so he would have been cautious for all of the reasons that I've given you. In my opinion, he doesn't write this down. Right, that makes sense. Um, all right, so that's that one. The third consideration, as you mentioned, is just the ascendant being in the last few degrees of a sign. Um, Lily says, "Quote: It's in no way safe to give judgment." Um, except he gives an exception again if the native is of the same age as the number of degrees um, that are rising. So, for example, if you had 28 or 29 degrees of a sign rising, that would be a consideration uh, late, late ascendant. But if the person actually is 28 or 29 years old for Lily, that would mean there was a connection between the chart. Um, Echoing or reflecting something that's actually happening in reality, which is the age of the querent. It's descriptive again. It's giving a description, but fundamentally, the late degrees are showing impending change. It's either that something is past maturity, so it's a dodo, um, or there's impending change. That's what late degrees generally show. So you've got early degrees showing a new change late degrees showing an impending change. And this is throughout the chart, not just on the ascendant. But on the ascendant, of course, if the question, the ascendant is the ascendant of the question as much as of the querent. So if it's late degrees, something is something fairly major is going to change, which is likely to make that question irrelevant. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and also, by contrast, if the early degrees ascendant indicates that something is premature, a very late ascendant may mean that it's overly mature, that it's past the point somehow of being relevant. So on page 298, Lily says, if few degrees ascend, the matter is not yet ripe for judgment. If the later degrees arise, the matter of the question is elapsed, and it's probable that the current hath been tampering with others. Uh, what does he mean by tamper? Do you know what he means by tampering with others? I'm not clear yeah, on the very last. He, they've been asking questions of other people. Okay, so it's maybe it's a question that already somebody they were already posed to like another astrologer and they got an answer to, but they didn't like that answer, so they went and asked somebody else. 
Yes, okay. I think that's what he means. And oh, I mean, or, or they had an awful lot of speculators then, didn't they? Crystals and all of that, mm. and summoning spirits and so on. So that's why he's saying just others, not necessarily other astrologers. These days, we might say they've been to a tarot reader or or crystal reader or whatever else. Yeah, yeah. Got it. The question needs to be clean. Got it. Okay. Uh, so that's number three. Uh, the Next one is, um, it's not safe to judge when the moon is in the later degrees of a sign, especially in Gemini, Scorpio, or Capricorn. Uh, so that's one that kind of gets into the issue with the void of course definition because this kind of gets conflated with a few considerations down. He mentions the moon being void of course, but here he's saying something about the moon being in the last few degrees of a sign. Uh, being a a potential consideration or some sort of cautionary indication. Um, it's not cautionary. Um, this is you need an understanding of of the moon's function and purpose, really, to be able to understand these these kinds of considerations. And I mentioned earlier that the kind the moon is a kind of modem, um, so it it kind of picks up the horary question and casts it up, you have to put it through the moon. The moon is the nearest to us, so it has to go through the moon, to the sun. It's the sun, as the lord of the heavens, that will then answer the question and, and put that out, give his, if you like, his commands and instructions to the other planets. That will then be brought down by the moon into the answer. So the moon's action, in because it, it behaves in this way, because it is so important, um, it's always co-significator for that reason. It's important that the moon is in a good condition, that it can actually do this. Now, in these late degrees, it are the terms of the, the malefics, all of the late degrees are terms of the malefics. So it's already... Um, it, it's late on, so we've got this late degree thing again. So there's an impending change. The moon is already about change anyway. You've got an impending change. Now it's going to be in um, in Capricorn ruled by Saturn, in Scorpio ruled by Mars, and in Scorpio it has its fall. The moon has its fall in Scorpio as well. So you've got all of these things going on, and it's in detriment in Capricorn, sorry. So you've got all of these things damaging the moon's ability to act, to complete its function. And this may well be why he suspended work that day when the moon moved into the end of Gemini. And he thought, nah, nah, we'll, we'll leave this for now. I can only do so many bad <laughs> you know, bad news judgments. Thanks very much. We'll leave this one for today. Um, and I think that's what it's about. It is understanding the moon's function that is vital. All right. So we're talking about the moon, and and that makes sense because the moon is always one of the main significators in any hoary question. So anytime there's a problem with the moon, that's going to be a major issue in terms of the hoary chart in general because the moon is always treated either as a secondary significator of the quarant or as a general significator for the question as a whole. Indeed, it's both. Both. It's both okay. of those things. Yeah, 
you have to look, and this is why it can get confusing, of course, um, but it is the co-significator of the querent. It is the natural significator of the question. You said general, which is what Lily would say. He would say general, but we interpret that as natural as opposed to accidental. So it it is vital, um, and this becomes increasingly clear when you work in when you're working with elections. It's essential that you keep the moon clean and strong. And this is the this is the case here. It's not clean and it's not strong. So the question is going to be likewise. Yeah, if it's in the last few degrees of a sign, which are is late and is, is the bounds of the malefics or the terms of the malefics, as you said, but then is also like you were saying with the last one, if um, you know, if planets are in late degrees, then something's about to change, something's ending, and there's about to be a shift of some sort. Yes. Um the moon itself is associated with change, yes, because of its tidal nature, right? Um, it's a, and, and phase, its phases, so it's associated with change anyway. So when you're coming to late degrees, you're looking at a changing situation. Uh, where the moon um, is concerned, you, you cannot rely upon it. So you can't rely upon a changeful moon in a changeful position and damaged by that position to bring about what you're looking for. So forget it. That makes sense. And uh, since that consideration comes right after the one of late degrees rising, it's very much tied in as, as almost like the same thought or is a very similar thought in terms of something being late or overly mature or already Chris, ending. Is this it, an original copy? Uh, yeah, this is my original copy. I got an original copy after I did my interview with um, Clive in 2019 in London, and I he let me look at his copy. I actually brought it to the interview. I was so amazed by it, and I was so so taken by it that I found I was able to save up and, and buy an original copy of Lily, which I've tried to use because sometimes when you share scans of stuff that's in black and white, it, it doesn't show up very well. And I wanted to be able to share. Excerpts from this and do different episodes. And I did an episode on Lily with Nina Griffin, um, as well as this episode with you. And it's nice to be able to have have reference to the actual original copy. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. So yeah, so late degrees moon. Then the next consideration after that is if the moon is in the via combusta, which Lily says is when she is in the last 15 degrees of Libra or the first 15 degrees of Scorpio. So similar thing there in terms of the moon being an important significator and being in that troubling but he spot says some say he says some say so that's that's one of those little clues that lily gives that maybe he's not fully on board with this but that it's the opinion of some people to pay attention yeah, to that. i don't think i've noticed him take any notice of it and he certainly as far as i can recall doesn't mention it um and I think there is some debate as about what this via combustor is, why it is. Um, and it may have been a collection of nasty stars, fixed stars, um, at some point that nobody can actually identify, or as far as I know, can identify, that are no longer in that, in that position. Um, yeah, I've, I've always been um, a little skeptical of the via combustor as well. The best explanation I saw somebody mention at one point was maybe it had to do with the fact that the two, the fall of both of the luminaries happens to be 
in those signs in in Libra where the sun has its fall and Scorpio where the moon has its fall and their fall degrees would be somewhere around there but that doesn't match up with you know 15 degrees of each of those signs so well Dor- Dorotheus is big on this first half and last half of the sign kind of situation so it may be it may be that but i just don't know it's not something I notice much. I mean, obviously, I notice if the moon goes into Scorpio, as you would, um, of course, but I don't really take any notice of the via combustor. Okay. Now, um, having said that, that mystic anvil is going to drop straight on my head right. now. <laughs> Let me check where the moon is. It is not in the via combustor right now. It's actually in the opposite of that, which is the moon's <laughs> exaltation. Um, all right. So, so let's go back to the considerations after the via combusta comes perhaps the most important and your favorite one, which is the next consideration is if the moon is void of course. So this is the one that you've done the most research on and made the most significant contribution on that grew partially out of your exchange with Maurice is that it caused you to go back and look at Lily's chart examples when he mentions the void of course moon, and that's when you found something interesting. Um, maybe maybe we should read the definition first, though, before we yes. get there. So Lily says here for this consideration that all manner of matters go hardly on except when the principal significators be very strong, when the moon is void of course. Yet somewhat she performs if void of course and be either in Taurus, Cancer, Sagittarius, or Pisces. So, so his key word is that all manner of matters go hardly on if the moon is void of course. But then, um, in order to answer Maurice's critique, where he pointed out that the moon is void of course according to the modern definition in several chart examples, you went back and looked at Lily's chart examples and you found something interesting. Mm. Um, I was shocked actually. It really did shake me up. Was that we'd all been reading it wrong? So you have to look at his definition of void, of course. Um, so what was the modern definition that you went into? Oh, I have to remember now. The modern definition is that the moon is void, of course, when it makes no ma- major aspect before it leaves the sign. When it completes no major aspect. Right. No, we. You got to think. No. Um, think think modern. It makes no more aspects. Yeah, could be complete. I don't. Nah. Let's say perfect. So using horary language, they don't use the word perfect, though, do they? I can't remember. I can't remember what it is, Chris. It's something about before it leaves the sign, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's basically that. Here, I have, a, I have a diagram that might help. So this is the diagram for the modern version, like in the 20th century and the 20th century, like the Hori tradition from Ivy and from Barbara Waters, um, the definition that they were using, I believe, which is that um, once the moon completes its last major aspect in a sign, and it will not complete any other major aspects before it changes sign, then it is void of course and that this tends to happen in the later degrees of the signs. So for example, if Jupiter was at 25 Cancer and the moon was at 26 Scorpio, then the moon would be void of course having completed its last aspect with Jupiter yeah, no, at 25. Yeah, that's not how I understood it. I, I mean, maybe I'm, I, have to, I had to unlearn an awful lot, and that was one of the things I had to unlearn. 
Um, so I'm not probably not remembering it, but I thought it was make. It's not making any more aspects before it leaves the sign. But yes, certainly it's to do with the later degrees. Absolutely. Um, and the reason that you can do that is because the orbs now belong in the modern uh, school of thought. The, the orbs belong to the aspect, not the planet. Once you reinstate uh, the orbs to the planets, then it becomes a much easier principle to understand. And then when you've got that principle of the orbs to the planets, um, and then you understand what application means, and that was crucial, understanding the meaning of application. It doesn't just mean moving towards. It is a technical term that means moving towards whilst being within the joint moieties of those orbs. So they have to be touching for an application to be in, in the process. Right, they have to be within orb? They have to be within the moities, the joint moities of their orbs, right? So yes, within orb is the, is the shorthand. Right. So yeah, they have to be within orb. Um, and in doing so, they have to be, one, the faster one must, in, in the normal course of events, has to be moving towards the other. Okay. So now an application is in process. We have an application. And the void, of course, rule says that when it has no more, when the moon or what the planet, he actually says, is not making any more applications. So here's the definition from uh, from book one of Lily for void, of course. Yes. Uh, do you want to read it or do you want me to? Okay. A planet is void, of course, when he is separated from a planet, nor does forthwith, during his being in that sign, apply to any other. Now, this sentence has been ripped to bits so many times. Right. Right. It has to be what he is emphasizing, and he does differentiate in his, in his examples. He is emphasizing that that application must be occurring at the time of the chart, right? It, you cannot say, oh, but it will apply later. That doesn't count. The application must be in operation now, forthwith. Okay. The application has to be in, in process, not the perfection. Right. That's the important point that you realized that he uses the word, he says, uh, applying, that it's applying. It has to be, if it's not applying, then it's void of course. Um, but he doesn't say anything about perfection, about completing the aspect. He only talks about it being applying, yes. and that ends up being crucial because when you started going through his example charts, you found um, that his actual working definitions seem to be that the moon is uh, not void, of course, if it's applying within orb. Uh, of an aspect to another planet, regardless of sign boundary. Absolutely. But that there could be other instances, even if the moon was much earlier in the sign, where if it was not applying within the next 10 to 12 degrees, then he would consider it to be void of course, even if it would still make other aspects or complete other aspects later in the sign. Well, that's having a curse. So when the moon is moving towards another planet, but they're not in aspect, it's, it, they will be, but they're not now. 
Um, the moon is having a curse to that planet. So it's moving towards it. It is not applying. And he uses this. You see it in, in his work. Um, and you see when he judges the chart when the moon is void, of course. He states it. He says so. You know, it's huge. It's one of those, if you like, considerations that generally speaking, he nearly always includes in his judgments, if not always. And whereas the veer combustor, late degrees and, and uh, of, of the moon and so on and so forth, uh, Saturn in the first or seventh and so on, um, he doesn't always note those as as unless they're part of his judgment. Mm. Um, but he doesn't say, oh, this this consideration is in operation here. You know, oh, Saturn's in the first house. Got to be careful. He never, ever says that. But he will always say when the moon is void, of course. Okay. Um, so let me see. Here's a diagram, and let me see if this matches. This diagram matches your understanding of void, of course. So let's say we've got a chart where the moon is at 10 degrees of Aries, and it's recently completed a sextile with Venus at 10 degrees of Aquarius, but its next aspect that it will complete isn't until it reaches a conjunction with Jupiter at 29 degrees of Aries, so at the very end of that sign. But because it is not within, let's say, 12 degrees of a exact aspect with any other planets in this chart, the moon would be considered void of course because it's not apl applying to any other planets. Yeah, well, uh, the moon has got an orb of around let's let's say ten or twelve degrees, so it's got a moiety of about six. Jupiter's got roughly the same, so um, you know, for them to be in touching distance, which they are not, um, would put them in an application. But in that diagram, the moon is void, of course, and will remain void, of course, until those joint moieties touch between itself and Jupiter. Um, in about what's that nineteen? In a in, yeah, in a in about eight ish degrees. Okay, so once the moon gets within orb of Jupiter, it's no longer void of course, but there would be that span right there in the middle of Aries where it would be considered void of course. But it it would also be noted as separating then from void of course, so applying to the conjunction of Jupiter, but separating from void of course. Okay, and that would be incorporated into the delineation with Lily. It would, yes, it would, and and it often is it it um, can signify things like you have had no news, or this situation has come out of nowhere. Um, you know, there's no background to it. There's no news. Those kinds of things are um, indicative of of the moon, and sometimes the uh, significator separating from void, of course. Okay. So this was actually a big discovery, and this is what came out of initially you mentioned it in your response to Maurice's article, and then um, it caused some waves, it seems like, in the community, because this was much different than what other astrologers thought, how other astrologers thought Lily defined the void of course moon up to that point. And some people pushed back, I'm, I'm guessing, and, and didn't agree with your interpretation. Nobody um, actually said so, though. Well, to his credit, nobody said I mean, so to me. It's okay, nobody said. Well, I, I have heard some people who disagreed over the years who later became changed their minds and actually said you were right. So I've seen actual opinions of other Hori astrologers, um, in some instances, begrudgingly agree that you were right in the end about your interpretation of Lily's chart examples and what Lily was doing in practice. 
And to his credit, it seemed like in his articles that Maurice acknowledged you were right relatively early on about the void of course moon. And yeah, he, he was pretty good. Did he? Yeah, he did agree was pretty good for that. Yeah, yeah. About changing. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't have, I don't have a drum to beat on this. Um, whatever people want to do, they do. But the evidence is irrefutable. And I didn't just go with Lily. I took it back. I went back as far as I could with the sources that I had available at the time, and there weren't that many. Mm -hmm. um, but we did have the Project Hindsight translations at that time, and I was one of the early purchasers. So I went through those, and it was in one of the Greek um, translations that I found the meaning of application um, as well. And it just is repeated throughout history. That is what the void of course moon or void of course means. It's repeated throughout history. So the evidence is irrefutable. What you do is entirely up to you. You know, it's not my concern. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I did an episode last month on the void of course moon, and it's a little tricky because some of the earliest definitions from Antiochus and Porphyry define it as an aspect that isn't applying within the next 30 degrees. Um, but then later in the tradition, Rhetorius seems to condense that definition and it becomes, um, potentially at least in his shortened version of the definition, the moon not applying until it's not applying within the next 12 or 13 degrees, which is the range that the Greek astrologers used for, for an applying aspect or an applying conjunction. Is this not, though, to do with the refinement of the orbs, the distances of the orbs? I mean, this this is, um, it seems to me anyway, uh, was a bit of a bone of contention for a very long time. And still, when Lily writes about the planetary orbs, he's giving a, a band. He doesn't give a, apart from Mercury, which is three and a half degrees and that's it. Um, but, uh, you know, um, sort of seven degrees overall, sorry. Um, but the others, he gives a band and he actually says, you know, I use whichever one I remember. So he, he was not exercised by this at all. Um, because if you have an understanding of the chart, then of astrology generally, then uh, you let the chart speak to you. You don't get too bogged down by these details. This is a very modern thing. Yeah, it's the exactness that we demand and, and we don't really we don't really need. If you if you are comfortable with astrology and you understand it, then you should be able to stay flexible. Yeah. Right. You mentioned Lily mentioning in passing at one point that he gives two different lists of orbs for the planets and he says, you know, I just I used whatever one I remember most recently in the moment or something like that. He wasn't super concerned about it in some sense. No. I mean, he says, whichever I, I use whichever one I remember, it's there in that book one where he gives the planetary orbs. He says it there. He says, this. some say this, some say that, I use whichever one I remember. Okay. Okay. Um, and so I think we do need to kind of undo the corsets a little bit sometimes. Um, you know, being modern, we tend to be um, much more demanding of our measurements um, and the human mind always wants to measure, of course. But the, yeah, we are very demanding of that. And if you read through his um, the er very early section of that first book, where he's talking about the calculation of charts, it's very, very interesting. His attitude 
to calculation. And it's not just his attitude, right? He's he's working as everyone else was working, as they used to work. So he's he's speaking pretty much for astrologers, plural. Yeah. It's a very interesting section. And I, I think it, some of this confusion around void, of course, earlier in the tradition, it might have had to do with the difference also between like sign-based aspects versus degree-based aspects, and some astrologers taking both into account in the earlier tradition, which could also lead to explain some of the ambiguity surrounding things like orbs in the tradition and some of the fluidity. I mean, it's possible. I, I don't know is the answer to that. Um, but what you've got is a kind of mantra. The moon is void, of course, when it makes no further aspects in its current sign. It's a mantra, and you just keep saying that. And when you read the Christian uh, Lily's definition, and you've got this mantra in your head, I mean, I did it. <laughs> you know, you've got this mantra in your head. That is what that says. Mm-hmm. Lily's definition says the moon is void, of course. The planet is void, of course, when it makes no further aspects in its current sign. That's exactly what it says there. Of course, it doesn't. Because you've got the mantra. And this this is what happens. You just accept it. Most people just accept what they're told and they apply that. And then when you say to them, no, hang on, that's not right. Look, this is what it should be. Oh, it's not right. It's not right according to the tradition, I should say. Mm-hmm. Look at the evidence. They can get a bit cross. So you, did you have pushback to that interpretation? You, you said you never heard anyone openly oppose it early on? Uh, no, once I did, once, yeah. Um, yeah, that's not true. So, so yeah, once I did. Um, but that's, you know, that's people, isn't it? It, it's, it just shows how emotionally tied we get to our precious uh, rules and our, our bits of astrology that we understand. Do you know if... If that was the interpretation of Lily, one of the things I haven't gone back to see is at what point did it shift to the alternative, like 20th century version where it was more about perfection? Or at what point did that become the interpretation, the favorite interpretation in the tradition? Do you have any idea? I would suspect that, well, given all the other changes that were made, I would take it back to that early 20th century theosophical astrologers. Um, They wouldn't touch horary astrology with a disinfected barge pole because it went against their principles and their ethic. Um, So other people picking up horary astrology later in that century would have been hamstrung because they had no background, they've got no context, and so would have been interpreting according to what they thought it said. Um, so I I think it goes back, it's not that old. Um, I don't think it's that old. I mean, one, one astrologer that perhaps would be interesting to look at, I, I did start once and then got bored, is Sibley, Ebenezer Sibley, of course, mm-hmm. as he was that later manifestation of what astrology sort of developed into in the 18th century. So um, he, he is a, would be an interesting case in point to see what he's saying and if he has changed the rule. I don't know is the answer. Yeah. yeah, well, that would be an interesting research project for somebody at some point to see if they can trace when the modern definition 
came about, um, I've been trying to do the same from the other end, from the Hellenistic tradition. Um, here's the this is from Robert Schmidt's translation of Antiochus, but it gives the two earliest definitions um, from Antiochus and Porphyry, and then a third one, a later one from Rhetorius. And I think this is where the the definition that that Lily used or that you've been using comes from from Rhetorius. So in yeah, I read something like this. It wasn't this one, but I did read something like this from uh, Project Hindsight. It might have been Antiochus, actually. Yeah, well, the the initial translation that was labeled as Antiochus by Project Hindsight in the '90s was actually Rhetorius, who was from the end of the Hellenistic tradition. Um, so this shows this page shows the sort of development of it because you have Antiochus, who's probably from the first century. The actual text of Antiochus here at the top, and it says. Um, running in the void, which is the Greek term for void, of course, is said whenever the moon does not join with any star, neither zodiacally by sign nor portionally by degree, and neither by adherence nor by figure, which is to say aspect, and nor indeed is it about to make a conjunction or meeting within the nearest 30 degrees, and that this figure maltreats the nativity. So this is being said in a natal context, and then Porphyry, a few few centuries later, Porphyry repeats this definition and says, "There's said to be running in the void whenever the moon does not join with any star, neither zodiacally nor by degree, and neither by figure nor by adherence, and nor indeed is it about to make a conjunction or a meeting within the nearest thirty degrees. Such nativities are undistinguished and unable to make progress." That's almost identical, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's the same definition. And then, so what's interesting here, though, is that then by the time you get to Rhetorius, a few centuries later in the sixth century, Rhetorius at the very end of the Hellenistic tradition, he shortens the definition and he just says, "There is a running in the void of the moon whenever it does not join with any star, neither bodily nor by figure." And what's interesting then is if you look up Rhetorius's definition of joining as well as Antiochus and Porphyry, it's basically the same, which is they say that it's an applying aspect within three degrees for planets or 13 degrees for the moon. So here's the definition of um, application. Antiochus says, there is adherence whenever a star approaches a star, the faster the slower, not being more, not being more apart from it than three portions. And Porphyry says, um, three portions. Oh, yeah. So here it is. Um, Rhetorius at the end, though, he says, in the most proper sense, there is adherence or conjunction whenever a star approaches a star, the faster, the slower, it, if it is not more apart from it than three portions. But then he says, the adherence of the moon is the conjunction whenever it stays apart from the portion of. Um, and then he goes on and he says within 13 degrees, basically. They say three degrees for planets, but 13 degrees for the moon. And right there becomes basically the the definition that you found that Lily uses in practice of void of course. Yeah, because um, the principle is the same, isn't it? I mean, the detail may change, but the, the principle remains the same. Yeah, and here it is. It's engagement sunafe, which means like ap- application. So Antiochus says there's joining. Whenever stars either join by degree or being within three portions, they are about to do so. But in the case of the moon, the conjunction is said whenever it is about to join within 13 degrees. And then Porphyry makes a similar statement that it's three degrees for planets or 13 degrees for the moon. 
So the the point here would just be that according to that Rhetorius definition, if he's just defining void of course as the moon not joining quote unquote to any planets, then that would be just not applying to any planets within 13 degrees. So right there, then we would get the working definition that you've kind of found in Lily's Christian astrology. In fact, I would go so far as to suggest, in fact, I, I'm convinced that as long ago as Greek astrology is from us, such a long time ago, the same system can be traced right up to Lily. You can see that system um, carrying through, uh, being developed, of course, by the Arabs, in quotes, um, to the nth degree. They did a lot of development, um, but it was, it's still the same system. Evolved, developed, detailed, but still the system remains the same. So, and this goes back to, you know, some of my irritations. I don't understand Hellenistic astrology. Um, I tried, I did try, um, but I, I wasn't very successful at it. Um, and I did try to understand it. But I, I could see that they understood what they were talking about. I didn't sit there and think, well, I don't really understand this, this is a load of rubbish. Um, I accepted that it was beyond my the way my brain worked, and so I left it alone. But I could see the similarities. I could see that it was the astrolog- astrological system that I recognised in the early modern period. So I don't, you know, I think it's important that these historical um, texts are investigated, we need to know that it's joined up, and it is joined up. There is a thread that goes right from there, or wherever they got it, where did they get it from? Um, India? Um, And it comes right up to the tradition as it's expressed today. It's the same system. We don't have to keep making changes to it. Yeah, there's a lot of continuity in the tradition, which is surprising sometimes when you're talking about such huge spans of hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes, indeed. Anyway, yes. Okay, so, but long story short, um, in the chart examples, there's instances you found where the moon is at the end of this end of a sign in Lily's chart examples, but as long as it's applying with an orb to an aspect with another planet, he would not treat it as void, of course. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So good to know and for people to be aware of or to discuss for whatever that's worth. Um, so the the other consideration, the seventh consideration was if the cusp of the seventh house or its ruler is afflicted, Lily says, be wary, basically. Um, or he says, quote, it's an argument the judgment of the astrologer will give small content or anything please pleases the querent. Mm. Um, and yeah. the reason for this, he explains, is because the seventh house generally has signification for the astrologer. Mm, yeah. I think there's a, a bell ringing in my head. There is an example somewhere um, in one of his that uh, where he says that he get, got small reward uh, or small appreciation for a chart that he did. I can't remember now which one it was, a horror he did. Um, but I think that, yeah, you would take notice of it, but I can't honestly say 
if it's the other thing you have to be aware of is that Saturn in the seventh or the um, seventh cusp afflicted or the ruler of the seventh afflicted is not really relevant to the astrologer if it's a seventh house matter being asked about. Right. So if it's a seventh house matter, then the focus of the question is going to be on the seventh house, and that's the primary thing that's important that the seventh is going to describe. It's mainly in non-seventh house questions that some of these considerations involving the seventh house could be relevant to the astrologer. Yeah. So again, it's about description. Does it have a descriptive element to it? If it does, then hold on. If it doesn't, then be careful. Right. That makes sense. So just going back to this whole consultation chart framework and the idea that the querent is the first house and the ruler of the first and the astrologer is the seventh house, the person that's received a question. Um, and this may also be tied in with, um, for example, there's medical questions or astrology was used for medicine and sometimes the doctor was the the seventh house or was assigned to the seventh the house. Yeah, for- the physician is the seventh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and this one I was able to trace back to Pseudotolemy's Centiloquium, which is a collection of aphorisms. Um, and this consideration is mentioned there. So I think that would have may, may have been part of Lily's inspiration for this one. Possibly. I mean, he read just about everything that was available to him, and he was trying to bring that to us to um bring because he was because i mean he discusses this at the beginning of the book because he was despairing of the state of astrology at the time mm-hmm. and he was trying to bring together all of these sources that would have been out of the reach of most people books were hugely expensive um so he's collated if you like and compiled this information to make life easier for people who want to study astrology and he wanted more people to study astrology Mm-hmm. So that's that's the purpose of all of this. Well, well, and also sometimes, like he had the the means to study astrology and to collect all these books, as well as the ability to read Latin and do that sort of textual analysis and compare different authors, and then making this available as a book and bringing all those sources together, but also making it available in English. Mm. It was he seems to have been interested in like accessibility and making astrology more accessible in some ways. Much so yeah, but he he yeah, but beyond that, actually going a step further than that, he wanted more astrologers. Definitely wanted more astrologers. So yes, that's part of it. If you read his almanacs, um his almanacs or or the other texts, treatises he published, um they all assume a certain astrological education on the part of his readers. Most people now wouldn't understand them, um, but you know he had a very wide audience. Um, so yes, he he was interested in that education very much. So yeah, that makes sense, and I can relate to that. I think different astrologers can relate to that because people that get deeply interested and invested in astrology. Also become invested in seeing it passed on to other people and and seeing it thrive and flourish. Mm. Did you know that he? This is just a little factoid. Um, that he actually did a reading. He was invited to give a reading of Christian astrology. You know when you get certain authors are asked to come and read from their books. Mm-hmm. He was he was invited to read from Christian astrology. Now how would that work? I don't know, but he did. For, so there's just an interesting little. Who did he read it for? Don't know. An audience. Okay, but an just audience. that he 
was invited to come and read an excerpt from it in front of an audience. Yeah. That's really yes. cool. Yeah, like an author would today. Right. You know, authors do that today. Yeah. So that's just a little factoid that isn't, but, but that is a very technical book to be reading out to people and to draw an audience. Can you imagine reading those considerations before judgment? But he, yeah. you know, he did, and people, yeah, they would have flocked. Yeah, well, it must have been an extremely popular book. It's sort of the equivalent of like today's, like a New York Times bestseller or something like that. Very much so. Do you know it was pirated? Did you know? It oh, really? Was pirated? I did not know that. How how did that work? Uh, I don't know. They got hold of the um, plates somehow, and they published another edition. Someone published another edition in 1659. That's not the second edition, right? Sorry. That's 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 different from the second edition that Lily himself published. He didn't publish a second edition. Oh, so you're saying the second edition was pirated? And it wasn't a second edition. It's identical to the first. Okay. I thought there was like some major improvement or minor changes or improvements or something no, to the nothing. second edition. Even, you know, where you've got that mix up with the page numbers early in the 100s, 170, something like that. There are a few pages where the page numbering goes out of sync. It's kind of back to front or something. It's mm. exactly the same thing. In the in the sixteen fifty nine printing, wow, that's really interesting and wild. I did not know that. I mean, that would could be a whole episode in and of itself. It's like Lily facts and things that you didn't know about Christian astrology because that's kind of a little mind blowing. So somebody got a hold of the plates and they issued an unauthorized edition years after the first one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. He knew. He knew about it, and you can find it. It's it's in the libraries. Oh yeah, I I have the second edition because I wanted to compare them to see what the improvements were, the changes. Yeah. But I hadn't done that yet because I was curious what he changed in the decade interim. Well, if you have a look at the page, it's, it's around one seven four, isn't it, where the page numbers go a bit wafferty. Um, if you go, yeah, there's a few pages that are kind of back to front. I think it's one seven four, one seven five, one seven six, something like that. And um, it's exactly the same in the sixteen fifty nine printing. It's not an edition. Okay, very interesting. Well, yeah, I would like to look into that more. Um, so, really quickly, here is from Pseudo Ptolemy. It's aphorism 14 from the Centiloquium, and it says, the this is from Ashman's translation of the Tetrabiblos, where at the end there's an appendix that has this. And it says, the astrologer will be entangled in a labyrinth of error when the seventh house and its lord shall be afflicted. So, it's a lovely expression, isn't it? Yeah, it's very flowery and stuff. Um, so this was from a. It's speculated to be from like a ninth or tenth century Arabic author, and this got translated then into Greek. But um, I think Henry Coley in his book he includes a translation of of these aphorisms. Yes, he does. Yeah. So they were in circulation, and I don't know if that was the exact um, inspiration for Lily including this consideration, or if it was more of a practical thing, but. That consideration in the next few, where he cites the Arabians and Al Kindi for the next several considerations, often are are connected with um, the seventh house and the notion that the astrologer is implicated in the question uh, through the seventh house and its ruler. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of those, and they're they're all much of a muchness. Uh, it doesn't really require. Great analysis to work out what's going on. It's again, 
if there's anything wrong with the seventh house and it's not about a seventh house matter, then you might want to be careful. You might want to think again and wonder about your client, your querent. Um, obviously, this only applies where you're not your own astrologer. You know, the seventh house, you are the first house, so the seventh house is irrelevant um, if you're doing your own horroris. But um, if you're doing client horroris, yeah, you might want to think about that. Right. So, what could be an issue on the astro- uh, an issue on the astrologer's part could be if you've miscalculated the chart or if you've misunderstood something or or something of that nature. Um. Yes. Um, yes. Really. But also, I think this earlier one about the querent in this, um, you know, not satisfying you, that also has to be kept in mind. I think separating them out like this. If you got an afflicted seventh house, mm-hmm. seventh house ruler, and it's not about a seventh house matter, then think hard about proceeding. Okay. Um, yeah, I think one of the later, one of the last ones is Saturn being in the seventh house and uh, same Lily's, thing. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. And, and Lily says in, in the seventh, Saturn either corrupts the judgment of the astrologer or as a sign the matter propounded will come from one misfortune to another. Yeah, yeah. So, so either ju- way, either way, are you going to want to, if, it, if it's really awful, um, if your answer is going to be really awful, you have to really think of if you want to give that answer to the querent. Um, and if the querent is actually going to listen to you. This, these are very difficult things to do. Remembering, you know, before the modern period, no, before our period, really, um, life was pretty brutal. Um, so, you know, no welfare, no health, proper health care, I mean, all of that stuff. It was, <laughs> life was brutal. So yeah, there are only so many times in a day when you want to break the bad news, if you see what I mean. And I think probably as an astrologer with several clients, you would want to take a step back sure, and say, that makes enough, sense. enough, enough, enough. Um, or it's interesting just the concept, he says, corrupts the judgment of the astrologer and the idea that the Horia chart itself could be warning you that you could make a bad call on this one or you could interpret the chart wrong. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I really haven't thought about them that hard other than what I've already said to you. Mm-hmm. Um, if it comes up and you're unhappy, don't judge the chart, or at least don't give the judgment to the querent. Step away from it. You know, it. it could be that your judgment is clouded. Perhaps you're being too subjective. Perhaps you've been affected by the querent, so that you want to give them the answer they want to hear. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I don't do personal consultations anymore. So, you know, if you're going to be, if you've been affected, you are likely to give an incorrect judgment. Okay. Uh, so that makes sense. So, Saturn in the seventh is consideration nine, problem with the astrologer potentially. Uh, consideration eight is Saturn in the ascendant, which is, uh, Lily says, the matter of the question seldom or never comes to good. So and yet he a- judges. With Saturn in the ascendant, 
Oh yeah, what are some of the? You said that he incorporates that into the delineation. It was actually very prominent and relevant in describing something about the querent in those instances. Yes, it does. Um, and it, but again, it's descriptive. It has to go with the rest of the descriptions. It has to go with what you know of the current circumstances. So yes, in fact, that's true of all of this. Right. Right. Okay. Um, let's see. The other ones. Ten is just the Lord of the Ascendant being combust, and Lily says neither question propounded will take, or the current will be regulated. What does regulated mean in a seventeenth-century context? Advised. They won't. They won't take advice. They won't. You know. They won't be. Um, they won't be told. They won't listen so, to you. So um, they're going to go their own way. So you know, don't put your fingers in that electric socket. They're not going to listen. They're going to put their fingers in anyway. That kind of thing. Um, and that I like combust- that imagery of a combust planet being like putting your finger in an electric socket. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sorry, my own humour passed me by there. I'm sorry. <laughs> but actually, it's it's actually even better than that because that combust planet. Um, significator, I should say, um, is important because it's showing that the the querent's brain is kind of frazzled. It's a burnout. So it could be burnt out. It could be huge stress. It could be that they're just uh, running around like a headless chicken. Um, you see these kinds of things in very stressful, fast-moving, horary questions. Uh, a combust planet is is common, um, but also it's secretive. Hmm. Something so hidden or something kind of, about it. Yeah, hides the querent from you, so the querent may not be being entirely honest. That makes sense. I had one like that, a hoary question, and it was interesting in that it was like a combust planet that was also in Scorpio. And it was the ruler of the ascendant, and the person actually was like a, a secret agent or a spy, and that was tied in with their job description in the Hori chart. Yeah, and and that kind of also that job is high pressured, hmm, a right. lot of stress in a job like that. So you get that idea of a fried brain in many respects, or in some respects. So yeah, it's it's um, yeah. That's that's a combust significator. I mean, again, it could be descriptive. You could have someone who is in a very high, high stressful situation, or is ill, mentally ill, even mm. with a combust significator. So, again, okay. it could be descriptive. All right, and then let's see. Consideration eleven is Lord of the Seventh Unfortunate, or in fall or malefic bounds. And Lily says the artist. Shall scarce scarcely give a solid judgment. Yeah, we've so done that. Is, yeah, we've done that. And then finally, the last one he gives is twelve. When the testimonies of benefics and malefics are equal, he says, "quote unquote, defer judgment. It is not profitable to know which way the balance will turn. Um, however, defer your opinion till another question better inform you." And mm, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, what does that mean? The last part, or I mean, I understand the idea of deferring if the indications are so even that it's hard to make a judgment call either way. Um, but what does he mean about defer your opinion till another question better inform you until I know, I know. the querent asks a question or a different question at a later time? Or I'm assuming so. Um, 
we have to be careful about repeated questions um, for fairly obvious reasons, I think. Um, but to actually advocate asking again is unusual. It's the only place I've seen it. Right. Maybe after circumstances have changed and, and a bunch of things have happened, then perhaps it would be enough. Something. I mean, possibly. I, I can't tell because being equal judgment, equal, you know, if if the testimonies are equal, there are, I I never went through and, and tried that. Um, is through his examples. And of course, if they were equal, he wouldn't have judged it anyway. So there aren't going to be any examples. Yeah, that was one of the. I mean, there's no evidence. That was one of the issues I had with the analysis of the charts that made it into the into Christian astrology and the analysis of the considerations before judgment. Is one of the things we can't know is what charts didn't make it into Christian astrology that may have had some of these that he, of course, wouldn't have included because he didn't end up judging them if there were any instances where that occurred. Yeah, it's but a, you see, he wouldn't even have drawn the chart up. I don't think because. If you're seeing up to eight clients a day, you know exactly what's going on in the heavens. You know exactly. You can always tell what the question's going to be before they've opened their mouths. Right. So you have that, you think there may be instances where there's that one client that walked in at like one o'clock in the afternoon and he knew that Saturn was on the ascendant and he just said, get out of my office or something like that? Yeah, yeah. He just wouldn't have seen them. I mean, I'm suggesting this in that where he's he see he appears to have stopped work when the moon went into the late degrees of Gemini. Mm. Now right. he would have had people waiting outside. They queued up, right? Um, but he would just would have sent them away. So he knew that was coming, and if if there was I don't know uh, some affliction coming around, he knew roughly where you know what what was rising when. Um, so he would have known what was on the 7th. So he knew if that was going to be afflicted or unfortunate or any of these arguments that he gives here. Um, mm -hmm. He would have known that. So the chances of his actually drawing a chart up for that are slim. Why would okay. he? Okay, sure. Okay, that makes sense. And um, I tried to trace that one. I think I found it. And Masha Allah mentions this consideration, and it gets repeated in I think Banati and some other authors. So it's another one of those ones that was passed on in the tradition when the testimonies of the benefics and malefics are equal. Um, so that's the third, the twelfth and final consideration, basically, and the the core considerations before a judgment. In the later aphorisms, he threw, throws in a few other things like Saturn or Mars in the tenth house, and what sort of credit the astrologer gets for answering the question or whether there's some problem there if they do answer the question that could add additional considerations or aphorisms but for the most part it's these core 12 which are the primary considerations before yeah, judgment yeah well, those aphorisms he's actually going to be absolutely lifting out of other authors without a shadow of a doubt um otherwise they would have been included in this first section Okay, interesting. Okay, so those are he's got these, he's collected these from his authors. He's writing, 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 writing. Now he's come to the aphorisms that he wants to include in his book. Right. But they actually repeat some of this or add to some of this, but it's too late. He's finished. He's finished that section of the book. It's gone off to the printer. So you think there might have been others that he because he does repeat some of them, but then that he throws in others that he picked up in the interim? Yeah. 
Yeah, that is a lovely book. <laughs> yes, I do. I think um, one of the one of the problems with writing a book before word processing is you can't go back. <laughs> You know, it's it's a it's a real problem, and I think that because of the size of this book, he may well have been sending portions of it to the printer. Now, when he gets into the later sections, he's now shut up of the plague, so he can't, and nothing's coming out of the house at that stage. Oh yeah, I forgot. So that was that was one of the nice anecdotes that came out over the past year that's suddenly relevant to us today in modern times is that Lily wrote Christian astrology in the middle of a major outbreak of the plague in London. Yes. But he he was also in London for three of the great plagues. The one where he was working for Gilbert Wright, they left for the country and he stayed to look after the house, collect rents and so on. Um, he stayed. Um, the second one, um, they moved Now, the second one, he shut up of the plague. That's the other one. And the third one, they moved out to the country. So he kind of did all of what everybody, the various responses to plague, outbreaks of plague. He did one of each. Okay. Um, by 1665, the great, the last great plague, he was, he was in the countryside. Well, hopefully that's encouraging to some people who are, are tired of being locked up that sometimes great works can be accomplished still under can those put, difficult can circumstances. Can I put some cold water on that? Sure. Mind if I put some cold water on that? Uh, in December the 21st, we had the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction right right on top of the solstice. And it was in Aquarius. It is in Aquarius. Um, if you think about Aquarius, it's a sanguine sign. So it's blood and air. Um, and at that time, we'd got notice. We knew about our plague. So the chances are, in the first three months after that is, is because of the solstice, is what we can expect for the next 20 years. In terms of you, so if you you're think saying- about, you think about last uh, You're saying in terms March. of the the length of the pandemic. Mm. This is going to keep coming. Well, no, no, not as a pandemic, um, because even with the plague, it was it was kind of there all the time. But they had occasional outbreaks, right? Um, and they had no inoculations. We have. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a bit like leprosy. It's never going to go or flu. You're never going to lose it, but it's definitely going to be around seriously around for the next twenty years, which is the the roughly when the next Jupiter Saturn conjunction will occur. Mm. Okay, sorry. Um, no, that's, yeah. Uh, well, hopefully, some people will write some Lilyesque tomes during that time and still, um, you know, be successful as as astrologers or be um, productive in some way. Yeah. Well, if you look at the first three months, you know, you had your new president saying new things. Mm-hmm. So that also should last for another 20 years, which would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, we'll see. Not quite we'll so see. great here, but never mind. <laughs> sure, we'll see what happens. So um, that's pretty much it for the considerations before judgment. So just to wrap this up, I think we've you know, talked about how they were not always used to reject questions necessarily. They were often giving you descriptive information about what was going on in the chart. 
and that that can sometimes be very helpful or useful information that you can incorporate into the delineation itself in different ways. Yes, and the 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 most important factor for finding radicality in a chart is description. Now that can be the moles, marks, and scars um, routine, which is very useful and works. It can be a physical description of how the querent looks and so on, or circumstantial description. But description is key. And this would have been, in my view, what Lily would have used ultimately, because he saw most of his clients. Mm. So he could see whether they matched the chart or not. And he was very good at physical descriptions. So um, that's the ultimate. Considerations before judgment are considerations. Consider these things if they arise before you proceed to judgment. As long as your descriptions match, then your chart is probably radical. But that and the question, the question has to be examined closely, closely. Right. And and to what extent does the question, does the chart match the question? Oh, yeah, that, it has to. That's, a, that's your description. Gotcha. Okay. That is your description. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Um, well, what do you, so I wanted to mention a few things. One of them is your book that you wrote that book on Lily with Peter Stock, Stockinger and that came out in 2014. So that's probably something people, if they wanted to learn more about Lily, would be a good source, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah, and um, we, you know, I mean, we've we I with the autobiography was from that was from the, uh, sorry, the the autobiography that came from the autograph, mm. so it's Lily's own handwritten copy, uh, and it was something that Professor Yostin actually said in in Ashmore's autobiographical notes that there wasn't um, a complete autobiography. Um, a biography of Lily. Well, that autobiography is complete. It is according to what he wrote and also has um, Ashmole's annotations later after Lily died. So we have extra information. Um, the research we did for The Monster of Ingratitude was all done with primary sources. Um, we went to the horse's mouth for those uh, for that paper, for that treatise. So yeah, it's all done um, as thoroughly as we possibly could, um, and as reliably as we possibly could. Okay, um, so that would be good for people to check out. That's available on Amazon. Just search for William Lilly, the Last Magician, Adept, and Astrologer. Um, you also, in two thousand ten, with the Tradition Library, with um, Helena Avalar and Luis Ribeiro, put out Lilly's autobiography, a retyped, a very nice edition of that. Um, and even though that website's no longer there, I'll put a link up to that in the show notes because that would be good for people to read if they want to learn more about Lily and more about his life because you do some commentary in that text uh, as well, I think, right? Mm, yes, yes. I mean, not huge amounts, but some, yes. Okay. And then um, what do you have going on in terms of uh, consultations or classes or, or other offerings? Oh, well, I still take clients, but um, usually, no, I, I, I usually, I stick now with my established clients. Um, courses, I'm still running the two correspondence courses, the traditional horary course, Foundation and Diploma. 
Um, forthcoming will be online courses um, that I'm hoping will be uh, late spring. It's in development now. Um, so because I'm trying to, I think we've all learned a lot, haven't we, with lockdown about Zoom particularly and Zoom type meetings. And I think that we've learned its shortcomings, but we also can see that it's a great window mm-hmm. and it's a great way of reaching people if you want to. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I wasn't a great advocate of it, but I must say this last year has, has, it has proved its value. I have to say. So yes, that, that's in process. Okay. So you'll be offering classes soon. And you also have a blog where you, you post articles. Um, yes. The blog, the-, the blog really is, is, in re- is replacing my website. So this is a great um, way of um, keeping up with what I'm posting up there, but Facebook and Twitter. Uh, okay. Good ways of of contacting me. So your blog is at sue-ward.blogspot.com, and your Twitter is at Susan Ward. And uh, can people email you as well? Yes, you've got uh, that's the uh, iCloud email address there. So it's uh, Sue Ward two four five nine at iCloud.com. Yes. Perfect. All right. Correct. Thank you. Thank you a lot for so much for doing this episode with me and for for sticking with it. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, thanks for your your analysis and your contributions to the tradition through your analysis of the considerations to help better unravel and understand what they actually mean uh, in modern times. Well, thank you. It's it's nice to have the opportunity to be able to talk about these things rather than write. Um, it's quicker for a start. It requires less effort to talk about it, and you can laugh at the same time. So that that suits me very well. Um, so this has been very interesting. You you've been forensic in your questions, <laughs> and I'm pleased about that. I hope I've managed to answer all of them to your satisfaction, um, and I have enjoyed it. I quite like being uh, kind of questioned that closely. I quite enjoy it actually. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the opportunity because a lot of this. One of the things that was interesting for me about researching this, and and again, thanks to Philip Graves for scanning a bunch of old articles for me from his library of these early journal articles so I could piece together what happened and study the exchanges between you and Maurice and and other things you had written. But I I didn't come into, I started studying astrology in 1999 when I was like 14 or 15, and I didn't get into traditional astrology until 2004 and 2005. you know the whole traditional revival. So much had already happened in the late 1980s and 1990s that I could only learn about in retrospect. But but very important developments and discussions had already taken place a decade or two before I even became aware of a lot of this. And a lot of that was only available in print journals. So unless you happen to have access to those, which are somewhat scarce, or you happen to have been around during that time, a lot of these discussions are not. You know, if you weren't around for it, then you didn't hear it. So it's nice to be able to talk to somebody directly who was not just there and participated in the discussions, but actually um, took part in and carried out some of the important research that has since shaped the tradition over the past two or three decades. So thanks for allowing me to have this conversation with you. Uh, 
You're very welcome. And I really enjoyed it. It's been lovely talking to you. And it's actually nice to have had a proper conversation with you, actually, after right. all this time. Yeah. So, I mean, if we come across each other, we can just pick up where we left off. Um, Definitely. Carry that sounds on with good. our conversations. But it's great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I hope I'll see you soon when all this is over. Definitely. All right. Thanks, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Uh, and I guess that's it for this episode. So we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, Issa Sabah, Morgan McKinsey, and Jake Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwac.net. The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co. Also, the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org. The Astral Gold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.